Zaragoz, Part 2, Chapter 4 Orfeo was taken to the castle of Zaragoz as a prisoner, but he was not treated roughly, nor were his hands bound. The approach to the gate of the fortress wound about the crag, but was not quite as steep as the lowest part of the road. The fortress was laid out in the conventional rectangular fashion, with a tower at each corner, but the manner of its building had been constrained by the contours of the crag on which it was perched. For this reason, the walls were not at all straight, meandering in both the vertical and the horizontal dimension. The North Tower, which one of the men-at-arms in charge of him referred to as the High Tower, loomed above its counterparts, while the one which faced south had by far the lowest elevation. When the party passed through the gate, Orfeo saw that the space within the walls was no more level nor evenly sloped than the ramparts. Where the conventional design placed a courtyard, there was instead a series of giant irregular steps, each one having two or three flights of stairs sculpted into it, and two of the larger vertical faces having doorways which gave access to chambers hollowed out within the stone. The living quarters erected within the castle, including the stables, were extended from the east and west towers. These two towers were on much the same level, connected by the widest of the natural ledges. Orfeo had little chance to study the scene in detail, though, because he was quickly taken to the door of the high tower, and taken up a narrow stair to a doorway with a small barred window. Beyond this door was a guard, posted in a narrow corridor, where two doors faced one another, each one with a sturdy bolt and a small hinged square cut at eye height, so that the guard could look in if he so wished. This place was certainly a prison, but it was not the lowly kind of dungeon in which a common man might be shackled. When Orfeo was taken into the room where he was to be kept, he saw that it was a cell designed for one above his own station, with a chair and table, as well as a bed, a good supply of candles, and a chamber pot. The men-at-arms who had brought him there left him to his own devices, but those who were coming to put him to the question were not long delayed, and Orfeo was not surprised to find that Scabera was accompanied by the magician who had felled Archangelo. Seen at close quarters, the wizard was a more fearful sight than he had seemed from a distance. The colour of his flesh was very odd, having about it far more redness than one would expect to find in a man of such dark hue. His eyes, which gaped so wide at all times that a rim of bloodshot white was always visible about the iris, were likewise dark and red in colour. His nose was thin, and the nostrils were reduced to tiny slits, and his mouth was perpetually crooked, but that was not the whole of it, for it was as if he came with a kind of aura, 
a radiance given off by some unearthly inner fire. When he breathed, there was a strange scent on his exhalation, which seemed to Orfeo a graveyard odour. Here, thought Orfeo, is a man who is corrupted, and not by any ordinary sin. There is something of the demon in his deeper being. He saw that the man sensed his dismay, and was pleased by it, for it confirmed his power. But he also saw that the sorcerer was tired, and that the blast which he had hurled at Archangelo had taken more out of him than he would have wished. Scabera ordered a liveried servant to bring more chairs, so that he and the magician might sit by the table with their captive guest, facing him with all the fierceness and determination which they could muster for his intimidation. I am Semhaza, said the magician, the duke's friend and chief adviser. I think you can tell well enough what manner of man I am. Orfeo nodded his head, but only a little. It signified agreement, not respect for the other's station. Loyal Don Estevan would like to try another way to make you speak, the wizard continued. But we would not like to offend Don Rodrigo, and we have assured the Lady Veronique that should you prove to be our ally and not our enemy, then you will play for us on the Night of Masks, which is some few days hence. In view of these considerations, I have agreed to test you in my own way. Will you give me your hand? Orfeo hesitated, but then reached out to offer his right hand, palm upwards. The magician took it in his own, which was claw-like and nearly black. The fingers felt like snakeskin, and had the same surprising warmth about them. Then, with his other hand, the left, Semhaza made a few slow passes over the upturned palm, describing symbols whose meaning Orfeo did not know. After a moment's contemplation, Semhaza reached out that same left hand to touch Orfeo lightly on the forehead. The reptilian fingers rested there for some two minutes before the magician removed them. You are no dolt, said Semhaza evenly, but we expected a man with some strength of mind. I do not think you have any magic, unless you have learned a few petty tricks which do not matter. But you have a strong will, which has been schooled to some degree of resistance. Have you lived among elves, perchance? Orfeo started in surprise, and said, I was taken in by wood elves as a child when they found me in such condition that I would otherwise have died. 
Semhazar nodded. Of course, he said, as though it had been so obvious to his touch that he had not really needed to ask. They must have taught you a little of the art of minstrelsy. I regret now that I did not hear you play, but I will surely have a second chance. Do you believe that I will know if you lie to me? The last question was asked abruptly, fired like a missile into what had been a laconic speech. The sorcerer was fatigued and would perhaps have preferred not to use his talents further until he had recovered his strength. But he was determined that Orfeo should not be let off lightly on that account. I do not believe that you can read my mind, said Orfeo, but I think you would sense if I tried you with outright deceit. A wise reply, said Semhazar, with apparent sincerity. No one can overhear the thoughts in another man's head, save perhaps the god to whom he prays. But a man of power can weigh the feelings in another man's heart, if he has the wit. Now, when did you first meet the one who calls himself Archangelo? Yesterday, when my route met his, within sight of this citadel. Good. I am glad to hear it. What did he tell you of his plans? Nothing at all. Uh, until I listened with Don Estevan to the speech which he made in Don Rodrigo's ballroom. Are you a servant of the gods of law? I am not, though I am not entirely out of sympathy with their cause. This answer made Semhazar smile a little. But he did not seem wholly displeased by it. He touched the player again upon the forehead and Orfeo was convinced that he could feel the power in those fingertips. And how much do you know of those whose cause the gods of law oppose? asked the wizard. Orfeo was surprised by the whimsicality of that question, which seemed rhetorical and certainly was not conducive to the rendering of an exact answer. Very little, he answered and that uncertain. In the empire they have a saying, those who know do not speak, those who speak do not know. I am a storyteller, and have listened to many stories. I do not believe the ones I tell, let alone the ones I hear. The interlude was brief, for the magician's next question was rapped out as sharp as his first. Have you any reason to hate the Duke of Zaragoz, or any that are loyal to him? I have not, said Orfeo promptly, but the answer drew a sharper look from his interlocutor, and he quickly elaborated. I, I know nothing of the Duke or his realm, save what I have seen these last two days. Nor am I the kind of man who quarrels with the people of the lands through which he must pass. But I must in honesty say this, that if I were told the story which Archangelo told tonight, wherever I might be in the world, then my sympathies would be with the just lord 
who was deposed, not with the others who displaced him. For all I can tell, the story was only a story, but I judged from the reaction of one or two who were present at its telling that there is truth in it. Nevertheless, the man of law advised me not to involve myself with the intrigues of the men of Zaragoz, and that is advice which I certainly intend to take. Semhazar still held Orfeo's right hand in his own. And now he touched it again with the fingers of his left. Then he released it and sat back. He looked sideways at Scabera. An honest man, he said. He would have told your torturers no more, and they would never have known whether a word of it was true. Scabera scowled. I suppose I must be satisfied, he said, if you tell me so. Semhaza looked back at Orfeo again. May I ask one more question? I ask permission now, because now that I have judged you honest, you are a guest again, and not a prisoner. The Duke's son has invited you to the castle, and I understand that you have agreed to his proposal. Ask your question, said Orfeo gruffly. The man of law referred to a word, a word which might unlock false hope in the hearts of those men of Zaragoz who do not love their duke as they should. Do you know what that word is? Not for certain, said Orfeo, truthfully. But there was a name which he used in idle conversation while we walked the road together. I suspect that may be the word he meant. Semhaza leaned forward suddenly, so that his foul breath was very noxious in Orfeo's nostrils. Do not use that word, he said. If you value your life, do not let it pass your lips. If you hear it whispered, turn away and put it from your mind. In Zaragoz, we welcome honest men. But while you are in this realm, you must recognize its lawful duke, who is Marcillo de Avila. Through no fault of your own, you know more than is good for you, and must now be careful. When the night of masks comes, play your lute with all the skill which your elven tutors could impart, and lead our courtiers in a happy dance. But do not meddle in matters which do not concern you. A wise traveller does not meddle, Orfeo told him quietly. A wise traveller learns what he can, and goes on his way, raising his hand against no man, unless that man raises a hand against him. Semhaza stood up, and just for a moment there was a hint of unsteadiness in his manner, as though his old bones were aching. Wise man, he said, wise and honest. I think that something might be made of a man like you, my friend, 
and so I will say one thing more to you. Do not be tempted to confuse law and justice. The man of law who claims to stand for justice is a cheat. If you would serve justice, take Verena for your patroness, and shun the champions of Sulcan, who are bitter and uncaring men. With that parting shot, Semhaza left the room, but Estevan Skibera did not immediately follow him. Instead, the minister waited in his seat until the sound of the magician's footsteps had completely died away. Then he stood up himself and leaned forward to emphasize his words. You are a man of wit, he said thinly, to win the favor even of that monster. Everyone loves you, it seems. Well, pretty player, I do not, and I feel it in my stony heart that I may yet have the chance to tease your tender flesh after all. Should that time come, I promise that you'll pay for all your wit and prettiness. Orfeo leaned back casually, but did not lower his eyes before the minister's hostile stare. Poor Don Estevan, he said. You should not be so resentful of your failings. There is many a man of your station who is deaf to a lovely tune and cannot dance a lissome step. I would try to teach you, but I fear you are too tense in mind and limb. For a second, Orfeo thought that Scabera might lose control so completely as to strike him, but this was not a reckless man however ugly his temper might be. In the end, the minister tried to smile instead. You may have no reason to hate the rulers of Zaragoz, he said, but you must still beware of giving them cause to hate you. I think the wizard has told me that already, replied Orfeo, and I am certain that I would be very foolish to make an enemy of him. Scabera conceded him with the last word, but put a punctuation mark to the dialogue by slotting the bolt on the further side of the door. Orfeo did not care about that, though it surely could be reckoned an insult to one who was once again a guest. But, when he thought over what he had said, he regretted being so wounding with his words. He had gained nothing by his churlishness, and had inflamed a hostility which he might have calmed had he made his words more soothing. Reckless Orfeo, he said to himself, as though using the voice of another. Poor, headstrong human boy, what can possibly be done with him? That reminded him of what the sorcerer had said, about there being something that might be made of him and he shuddered. He had little enough knowledge of the gods and godlings which that man served, but he knew enough to have a sensible idea of what those gods and godlings made of their worshippers. He hoped, in his heart, 
that nothing ever would be made of him by such as they, because he had reason to believe that they were very treacherous servants, and the cruelest masters imaginable. He laid himself down upon the bed, eventually, though he did not immediately try to go to sleep. He lay on his back, alone with his own thoughts, assessing the story of his life and finding it somewhat lacking in pace and plot. Despite that, it was not devoid of action and suspense. He sat up again, abruptly, when he heard the bolts of his prison drawn back. He had to shield his eyes for a moment against the light which came in. It was an unnatural light, created by petty magic, but it burned no brighter than an ordinary lantern, and he could not admire a person who made magic when ordinary means would do, merely to display his skill. Or, in this case, her skill. It was the unknown woman who had cast such covetous eyes upon him when he played and danced. She looked down at him now, with the same avidity in her gaze. We were rudely interrupted, she said, when I came to speak to you before. But we will not be interrupted now. Orfeo studied her carefully. She was handsome in her way, though no longer young. It was not easy to guess her age, because he had a strong suspicion that she might be older than she seemed. There were no crow's feet by her eyes or wrinkles in her neck, but there was something in her manner that gave her away. Her full lips were carried slightly forward, as in a perpetual pout, or as though she were about to lick them in anticipation of some tasty sweetmeat. He judged that she was a sensualist through and through, and though she shared something of Semhaza's dark artistry, it was plain that she employed her magic to different ends. My name is Morella de Arlette, she told him while she still stood over him. It is a Bretonian name, as you will doubtless know, but my mother married for a second time to a nobleman of Zaragoz. I was afraid to come here when I was a child, for the journey was so long and the hills so steep. But I love it now, and am proud to have adopted it as my home. She knelt down then, and put out her hand to touch his forehead, almost as Semhaza had done. He felt the warmth of her fingers, and something else, which made him pull away. You have little faith in your charms, my lady, he said. If you think you need your sorcery on a mission such as this. She laughed. Oh no, she said. It was not a bewitchment of that sort. I can see in your eyes and your arms that nothing lacks in your enthusiasm for love. But I doubt that you have ever had a sorceress before, and I suppose you do not know what a little art can add to the experience. 
He hesitated just a little. But she was handsome in her way, and he was not usually a man to refuse what was freely offered. Even the thought of her magic and its possible source did not inspire such fear that it dampened his desire entirely. Now that he could smell her hair and see the curve of her breast, he was still afraid of her. But he was curious, too. Do you seek to spoil me for other women, then? He whispered, as she placed her body closer to his. Is it your intention that no other night of my life will ever compare with this one? Of course, she said. It is too long since I had a fair-haired man and for all that I love this place, it becomes tedious to visit the same beds too often. Let me enchant you, just a little, and I promise you no disappointment. I will teach you the true meaning of luxury, without detracting at all from your strength. She took his hand then, and placed it inside her blouse, as if to tempt him with the beating of her hungry heart. He felt the curve of her breast, which encouraged his own desire. The touch took his fear away, and the uneasy feeling which had come over him when first he saw her watching him seemed foolish now. She was only a woman, after all. I need no magic he whispered to her, as his fingers began to tease her flesh. I suppose that you have grown so used to the moody Estallians that you have forgotten what the men of our own nation are like. Bretonians, my lady, have always known the meaning of luxury in love. Let us play our tunes with ordinary skills, and I promise you no disappointment. At that, she laughed, and seemed to agree, but when she climbed on top of him and he relaxed his wits, she brought her magic to bear after all, and when he felt the ecstatic thrills which she set to running through his body, he was not sorry that she had defied him. He was consumed by fiery sensation whose intoxications drew him to extraordinary efforts. The taste of her sweat was sweet upon his tongue, and her caresses were empowered by her magic to reach into the very core of his being. When she finally brought herself to orgasm, she shuddered and shrieked with the pleasure of it, and spun it out for an amazing length of time, which left him envious. In that long moment, while he struggled to hold her, he longed for magic of his own, which might allow him access to such ecstasy. Indeed, when at last they lay still together, he wondered in the contentment of his satiation whether he might not have spoken truer than he knew, and that this might be a memory to make many future nights seem dull. But the excitement ebbed away and the sweetness upon his tongue 
turned to a bitter aftertaste. He had always thought of sexual intercourse as a kind of music, better when it was played as a duet than as a game of soloist and instrument. The girl who had lain with him the previous night made a living by offering herself as paid instrument, but she had come to him freely as a player, and though she had no magic to thrill her as the Lady Morella had thrilled, there had been artistry as well as honesty in her enthusiasm. Tonight, he had taken the instrumental part while his lover merely used him, and all her magic would not serve now to make him glad that he had been used. He knew, furthermore, that with the morning light his memory would fade, and that when passion came to take hold of him again, even if it were inspired by a tired street girl seeking comfort in his arms, that moment would drive all others from his mind. The present would always drown out the past. That was what gave lust its privileged place in human affairs. He was tempted to languish in the fullness of his feeling, but the opportunity to be inquisitive seemed too good to miss, and he thought that this Lady Morella might be in a better mood now to feed his curiosity than any other he was likely to meet. So he said to her, What have you done with the priest? She stirred in his arms and gave a little laugh. They have not killed him yet, she said. They will save him for a while to make a pleasant morsel for one who will not care that his meat is less than tender. She said it warmly, almost lasciviously, but the meaning of the words struck a chill into Orfeo's heart. He resolved that he must hide his disgust, though, for he thought that she would tell him more if he followed the tide of her feeling. He will be food for demons, then, he said, as though it were a light matter. I had thought that their kind would not like the taste of a man of law. Oh, no, she said with a liquid chuckle. That is the taste they love best of all. To feast upon the flesh of an enemy is ere to make a satisfying meal. It had not occurred to me, he admitted. Perhaps there are luxuries of life which I have not tasted yet. Oh, yes. There are, she said, wallowing in her contentment. A man like you could make so much of them, if only you cared. There is a god of luxury, you know. I cannot tell you what a joy it is to find that out. You are a clever lover, I concede. But a novice in the true art of ecstasy. I have given you a taste tonight, but I swear to you that you cannot imagine the harvest of pleasure which an adept may reap if only he has the will and knows the way. I have heard of the way, said Orfeo in a small distant voice, but it is one I have not cared to follow. You knew the priest of law, did you not? when you saw him come into the hall. I saw that you recognised his voice. She was a little surprised by this, but not discomfited. 
I met him once, in Gualcazar, she said, when I undertook a small mission on the Duke's behalf. I did not think he would care to face Semhaza a second time, but it seemed that I was wrong. There was much left unsaid in this speech, but Orfeo did not dare to become too precise in his questions, because whatever he said to the sorceress would surely be reported to Skibera and to Semhaza as well. He had spoken the truth when he said that it was not his intention to involve himself in this affair. Semhaza told me you have travelled far, and were not born blind, said the Lady Morella, when she saw that he did not mean to ask another question. And you have that appetite for love in you that a wanderer should have. A commoner by birth you are, but not so very common in mind and soul. I knew when I heard you play that you were no man of law, and I knew that when we made love the pleasure would carry you away. Law is all hard discipline and sullen strength, and you were not made for such a life as that. But I was not made for chaos either, he said softly. You know that name. You are as clever as I had supposed. But you do not know what lies behind the name, nor can you. I dare say that you heard it from the lips of some disdainful elf, who spoke of it as though it were something dwarvish, not fit for those who know the meaning of beauty and sublimity. But did you not sometimes hear your vainglorious woodsman say the word human in much the same way? as though spitting it out from their mouths like a vile taste. You are not an elf, my love, as I know to my reward. You are one who might gain much from the powers which I command, and should know that without some spirit of disorder the world would be dead and dull, and humans little more than halfling dimwits. There is chaos in all men, my darling Orfeo, and were you to cut it out of a soul like yours, it would be as if you had severed the hand which plucks the strings of your lute. You are right to say that I know little of chaos, but that which is contained in fearful stories, which men tell to frighten one another, he said. But I have known those who would call you demon-led, and seek to sentence you to death by fire. He said it grimly, careless as to whether she took offence, but she only laughed with apparent good humour. All men die by fire, dear Orfeo, she said. Some burn more quickly than they like on a witch-finder's pyre, but all are in the end consumed. Life is fire, my lover, and we begin to die in its subtle flames before we are even born. Those who know how to live must learn the secrets of the fire which they are, and the embers which they must become. Our bodies are filled with mordant fluids which sear our flesh as we move, and use us up 
while the clocks tick away our little measures of existence. There is no fate but fire, my love. But the luckiest and the best of us can learn to fan that fire into a better kind of life. To burn more brightly than is given to us by our destined span. As she said this, her own eyes seemed lit from within, and he saw how red they were. Suddenly, the thought came to him that this was not Morella de Arlette who spoke to him at all, but another who had placed these words upon her tongue. And then the idea came to him that while he lay with her there, may have. that while he lay with her, there may have been others sharing in the pleasure of his body, and in the magic which had enlivened it. The thought that he had lain, somehow, with the monstrous Semhaza, he quickly put out of his mind. That it was Semhaza's voice which spoke to him now, though, he could not doubt. The Lady Morella was not entirely herself, but had been made an instrument for his temptation. Something might be made of a man like you, Semhaza had said. Orfeo repeated those words to himself again, and for a second time he shied away from the notion. He resolved then, with a stubborn spirit of rebellion, that if it should transpire that he might somehow find Archangelo and could reach out a hand to help him, perhaps he would do it after all in spite of all the warnings he had heard. It might serve as a kind of penance, offered in return for that guilty pleasure which he had recently enjoyed with Morella de Arlette, who was, he had no doubt, a toy of demons. Chapter 5 Orfeo was rudely awakened shortly after first light, when the door of his cell was thrown open with a bang. His own start of surprise was quickly controlled, but the Lady Morella was clearly unused to such entrances in the places where she normally slept, and the discomfort of her abrupt arousal was more than redoubled by the anger she felt at being discovered here. It was probable that she had intended to leave before dawn, but had slept too soundly, in which case... It was no one's fault but her own that she was found here. But, as she came quickly to her feet, hugging a blanket in order to hide her nakedness, she was by no means intent on blaming herself for the unfortunate situation. In the open doorway there stood a man-at-arms with a naked sword, and there walked into the cell before him a servant boy, no more than ten or eleven years of age. The boy was carrying two trays, each loaded with a wooden dish, a loaf of bread on a plate, and a jug of water. He was such a small boy that the task of balancing the two heavy trays was not an easy one in any case, and when he caught sight of the furious woman leaping up before him, that balance became instantly precarious. "'How dare you!' screeched the Lady Morella. Inertia carried the boy forward one more hesitant step, and then the fear of dropping his burden made him stagger forward even further. 
The lady raised her arm and caught the boy a tremendous blow about the head, which he could not duck because of his problem with the trays. The blow, of course, settled the matter, and the contents of the trays flew everywhere, while the boy was hurled across the cell. He crashed into the wall and struck his head hard, falling limply to the ground on the instant. The man-at-arms tried feebly to make some excuse, but could only produce half of some garbled statement about the prisoner's breakfast before Morella, further enraged by the fact that her protective blanket had been drenched, shouted him down. "'Imbecile!' she cried. "'This is no prisoner!' He has been examined by Simhaza and found innocent. Did no one tell you that he is to be moved today to a proper apartment? Has no one taught you that servants do not come to a sleeping guest, slamming doors and hurling slops, but wait to be called? You will learn that lesson now, that I swear. Orfeo, meanwhile, had gone to the stricken boy and found him nearly unconscious. There was blood in his mouth where he had bitten his tongue, and more in his hair where the collision with the wall had split his scalp. My lady, he said, the child is hurt. And so he should be, she said, still speaking very angrily, and he will certainly be whipped for his stupidity. My lady, said Orfeo very soothingly, it is plain that no one did tell these people that I was no longer to be reckoned a prisoner, and they were only doing their duty as they saw it. The the fault is not theirs, and the boy is hurt far worse than he could possibly deserve. Let me take him back to the servants' quarters, where I will see what can be done for him. This man must guide me. There were two ideas in his mind when he said this. First, that the boy was indeed hurt and did need attention. Second, that it would leave the lady alone in the room to put her clothes on and take herself away before the commotion attracted more attention. If she did not care about the first matter, she certainly cared about the second, and she was quick enough to agree. The man-at-arms began some protest, but Orfeo stilled his tongue with a fierce look as he picked up the stricken servant-boy and immediately handed him over. The soldier looked surprised, having no time even to sheathe his sword, but accepted the burden and allowed himself to be pushed away from the door. The boy moaned faintly, but suffered himself to be carried out. Orfeo then took up his own clothes as many of them, at any rate, as would serve the purposes of decency, and brought them outside the cell, closing the door behind him before he put them on. He found that he had left his shoes, but he decided that his stockings would have to do, even though the stone floor was cold. When he had dressed himself, he took the boy back from the arms of the other man and said, "'Show me where the kitchens are.' The unfortunate man-at-arms was desperately confused. Here, it seemed, was a prisoner, or perhaps, his slow mind had now realised, a man who was not a prisoner, walking out of his cell, leaving a lady of the court behind him, and demanding to be taken to the kitchens, bearing a bleeding servant in his arms. 
It was an occurrence for which no possible precedent could offer him guidance. The other prisoner, he protested feebly, food for the Lady Seraphima. Whatever food and drink there was has been spilled, said Orfeo firmly. If you had a prisoner to be fed, then we must first go to the kitchens. Now go! The man-at-arms reluctantly went, leading the way downwards through the cold corridors. They had to go outside, and then came inside again to pass through a huge room, which must have been the great hall. But the hour was very early, and they met no one en route save for sleepy men-at-arms who did not challenge them. Orfeo was certain that the Lady Morella would be able to make her way back to her own quarters without attracting any more attention. "'What is your name?' asked Orfeo sharply, as they passed through a door in the further wall of the hall and began to descend into the bowels of the castle. "'Fernand Arrigo,' replied the man-at-arms, after an unhappy pause. He had apparently decided that having gone so far as he had, there was nothing left to do but take the orders given to him by this person who was not a prisoner. Well, Fernand, oh, said Orfeo, I will tell you something now which you must remember, as a fact which you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, so that you may tell it to anyone who demands the truth from you. When you came to my cell this morning, I was alone. The boy tripped over his own clumsy feet and hit his head against the wall. You permitted me to bring him to the kitchens because you had been told that I was not to be treated as a prisoner, though you had not been told that my breakfast should not be brought until I asked for it. Is that clear? I was alone, and the boy fell over his own feet. "'began Fernanda Rigo. "'Orfeo looked down at the boy to see if he had heard, "'but the child was too dazed and confused to listen properly. "'When the boy is better,' he said, "'you must remind him of everything I have said. "'You must make him understand. "'Do you hear me, Fernand? "'You must remind him.' "'Yes, sire.' said the man-at-arms sullenly. "'You need not address me as sire,' Orfeo informed him dryly. "'I am but a common man, like yourself, and you may call me Master Orfeo, or simply Orfeo, if you prefer.' They soon reached the kitchens, where many other servants were busy with their duties. Half a dozen of them gathered around while Orfeo laid his burden on a table. "'Poor boy,' said Orfeo, having explained his own version of what had happened, "'I fear that he may be badly hurt.' He examined the child again, but he was no healer, and could not say for certain whether the skull was cracked or not, though by now the boy seemed to have come to his senses again, and had never been unconscious. Fernand, meanwhile, was saying something to the cook about the Lady Seraphima's ruined breakfast. All was confusion until a senior manservant came in, demanding to know what was afoot. Orfeo explained yet again 
and though the man seemed suspicious, he did not challenge the story. Orfeo guessed that this was due at least in part to the other's realisation that whoever had been informed of Orfeo's altered status had made a bad mistake in omitting to make sure that the news was passed on to the likes of Fernanda Rigo and the boy. Oh, thank you, sir, said the manservant, his careful sir being far less a term of respect than Arrigo's sire. I will take care of the boy now. Orfeo shot a warning glance at Fernanda Rigo, reminding him to hold his tongue regarding Morella d'Arlette, but he left without saying any more to anyone. Orfeo fully intended to make his way straight back to the cell where he had been placed, which would by now be empty of any other persons. There he planned to wait until a servant came to bring him to better quarters. It did cross his mind, though, that he might peep into the other cell which was across the corridor from his own to see if he could catch a glimpse of the other prisoner who was lodged there. It intrigued him to discover that there was someone there whose quality properly required such a prison, all the more because it was a lady. Unfortunately, Orfeo had been so preoccupied with the task of pressing upon Fernand Arrigo's dull mind the necessity of giving a diplomatic account of what had happened in the cell that he had not efficiently memorised the route by which he had been brought to the kitchens. He quickly found himself confronted with a series of archways which he certainly had not come through before, and could not then find an upward-leading stair which would take him in the direction he wanted to go. The corridors were ill-lit in the extreme, having only single candles placed at intervals of six or seven yards, and one or two of these had gone out. There was no windows in this low part of the fortress, which was let into the crag itself. Orfeo was annoyed with himself when he found that he was lost, but by no means anxious. He knew that if he only kept walking, turning corners at random, then he would be sure eventually to meet some servant who could give him directions. But when he finally heard voices and went towards them, he found himself in a very gloomy place indeed. Two men were talking together in a covert, which had no light in it, and which had presumably been chosen because of that fact. Because he was in his stockinged feet, Orfeo made no noise as he approached, even though he was not at first disposed to conceal himself. As he drew nearer, he became very glad of this, because he caught several words of conversation which converted his intention to ask for directions into a determination to wait and hear what else was said. Alas, he had come too late to hear the greater part of the exchange, and there was little more to be discovered. But there was a final instruction given by one man to the other, which he heard quite clearly, and which worried him intensely. Remember, said the man, in a voice which was as hard as stone, though not unmusical. You must kill Calvi, but take Cordova alive if you can. He may be more useful in that condition, and his disappearance will suffice for our effect. Remember how to write the word and inscribe it 
as I showed you, in Calvi's blood. It will be done, said the other, and immediately began to walk away. He came directly towards the place where Orfeo had halted, but Orfeo was able to step back into an alcove which was utterly dark, so that the other passed by without suspecting that he was there. He carried no candle, plainly knowing his way well enough to find it even in near darkness, and Orfeo could not see his face. The other man had turned away too, and had gone in the opposite direction. Orfeo did not see his face either, nor had he recognised the voice, both of which facts he regretted, in view of what he had heard. He had apparently discovered a plot against the one man in Zaragoz he could confidently reckon a good one, and yet he had no idea at all who might be involved in the plot, or how it was to be put into execution, or when. After a moment's pause, he continued on his way, trying to retrace his steps to more brightly lit corridors. He went more carefully now, because he was anxious not to be found too near the place where he had overheard the end of the conversation. But he need not have worried, for it was fully ten minutes before he found an upward stair and a way into the part of the castle where the floors were carpeted with wooden tiles and the walls decked with hangings. Once there, he had no difficulty in finding a maidservant who took him back to the place where he had been lodged for the night. There, to his astonishment, waiting for him amid the mess of the spilled food, was Thomas de Avila, the son of the Duke. It appears, said Thomas, that there has been an accident. The boy who was bringing the food was unfortunate enough to slip, my lord, said Orfeo. He was hurt when he fell against the wall and the men-at-arms with him permitted me to carry him to the kitchen. You do not need his permission, said Thomas. You are no prisoner here, though it was so late when Scabera left you last night that he thought it best not to have you move to another room. The man did not know that, my lord, Orfeo told him mildly, and therefore I begged his permission. I am sorry that your other guest should have lost her breakfast. Tomas frowned, but only replied, The lady will not go without. There was a pause then, while the Duke's son cast about for something else to say, and Orfeo realised that Tomas had not come to these quarters in order to see him, but on some other errand, perhaps to visit the mysterious Lady Seraphima. Seeing that this offered him an opportunity, he said, May I ask a favour, my lord? After a moment's hesitation, Tomas said, By all means. I understand that the steward has been asked to find other accommodation for me, within the castle, but my belongings are still in the servants' quarters at Rodrigo Cordova's house. I am well content with those lodgings and if your lordship does not require my presence here until the night of masks, perhaps it might be simpler if I returned there. The youth was slightly surprised by the request, but by no means dismayed. From his point of view, at least, 
Orfeo's continued presence in the castle was obviously to be reckoned at best an irrelevance, and, in view of this morning's events, perhaps something of a minor nuisance. You are not a prisoner, he said, as though repeating the words to remind himself. You may certainly return to Don Rodrigo's house, if that is your wish. Thank you, my lord, said Orfeo with a bow. He paused only to collect the garment which he had left off in his hurry to be dressed, and to put on his shoes. Tomas de Avila waited while he did so, but seemed relieved when he bowed again and took himself off. He was stopped at the gatehouse of the castle, and the officer of the watch seemed inclined to hold him there while his story was checked, until there appeared, still about the business of delivering breakfasts, to judge by the leather bucket which he carried, containing loaves of bread and a corked jug of wine, none other than Fernand Arrigo. Arrigo confirmed that to his certain knowledge the player was a free man, and he was allowed to leave. As he descended the path which spiralled around the crag, Orfeo was overtaken by a detachment of eight soldiers, who were urging their horses down the hill at what seemed to him a precipitate speed. No doubt the beasts had taken the path at a canter a hundred times before, but he nevertheless formed the impression that they were being taken along in haste. He immediately became anxious, lest they have the same destination as he, and he looked down the rock to see whether they came full circle around it, and if so, how many times. He was glad to see that they eventually appeared on a part of the path below Don Rigo's house, and had obviously not paused there. But he did not let relief slow him down. There was another path connecting the castle to Don Rodrigo's house inside the mountain. That route could presumably be trod in either direction by those bent on treachery and assassination. Even though his road was downhill all the way, Orfeo did not find it comfortable. His excursion in stocking feet had not hurt his feet at all, but some of the water which the unfortunate boy had spilled had splashed into his shoes, and the dampness soon soaked through his stockings. But this was only a further encouragement to hurry, and, by the time he arrived at Rodrigo Cordova's house, he felt that he was not a moment too soon. He quickly found, though, that he was by no means soon enough. For when he inquired at the lodge whether the owner of the house was at home, he was informed that Rodrigo Cordova had ridden out immediately after dawn, having business in his vineyards, which lay to the north of the town. Orfeo was more dismayed by this news than he showed, and asked to be allowed to go to the room where his things were. The gatekeeper, knowing that he had been taken away on the previous night by Scabera's men, was apprehensive, but was persuaded to go with him to the house to find Don Rodrigo's stewards. The steward Cristoforo accepted his account without question, and let him go to the room where his pack was. There Orfeo changed into his travelling clothes, and buckled on his sword. He considered, briefly, telling Cristoforo what he had heard, and asking that a group of Cordova's men 
should ride after him with a warning, but he dared not do it. For one thing, he had not the slightest idea who might or might not be involved in the conspiracy. For another, he did not want the word spread around that he knew anything of it, lest he be imperiled himself. He was now prepared, despite what he had told Semhaza, to involve himself in this tangled affair so far as to give a warning to a man he liked, but he was not prepared to have it broadcast to all on sundry that he had taken it into his head to meddle in a matter which plainly did not concern him. Accordingly, he begged Don Rodrigo's steward for the loan of a horse, on the ground that, as he must stay in Zaragoza for a few days, waiting for the night of masks, he would like to see something of the realm. The steward, presuming that his master's order to see to Orfeo's needs had not been cancelled by the previous night's events, reluctantly agreed and took him to the stables. There the loyal and careful Cristoforo conscientiously picked out a horse so old and sad of eye that its loss would be no grave matter. It was not the steed which Orfeo needed, but he held his tongue, feeling that it would be for the best to get on his way as quickly as possible. He knew in any case that if the riders from the castle were upon the errand which he had heard discussed, he would need a horse with wings to catch them. He could only hope that the difference between a fast steed obtained directions from the steward regarding the location of the Cordova estates, and found them simply enough to cause no difficulty. The main north road from the town went directly through these lands on its way to the foothills of the Arana, from which he had lately come by a nearly parallel route. He rode down the hill as fast as he dared, cursing the indirectness of the road. No one stopped him at the town gate, for which he was very grateful, considering how much time he had already lost. He pressed the old horse as hard as he could, and was pleased by the way that it responded now that the path was straight. Though no one would choose to ride it into battle, it must have been a war-horse in its day, for it had a proud step and a good heart. Slow it might be, but unwilling it was not. He passed several groups of men upon the road, making their way to the town with haircuts and donkey trains. Once he believed he had seen one of the men who attacked Archangelo near the crossroads to the east, but the man hardly glanced at him as he rode by, being intent on some heated discussion with his fellows. There seemed to be a good deal of discussion going on, and Orfeo wondered whether news of the remarkable happenings at Cordova's house had already flown so far as to feed the gossips of the whole realm. Twice he paused to ask how near he was to Rodrigo Cordova's land, but the men he asked were as vague as peasants everywhere in judging distances, and had not the imagination or the calculative power to tell him how long an ordinary horse might take to go there at a tired trot. As it turned out, the sun was past its zenith when the road began to wind through the valleys, whose slopes were terraced from the growing of vines, and where countless little streams and rivulets carried the water, which was the lifeblood of the region towards their confluence with the Ebero. At last, the labourers in the fields, 
were able to confirm that he was now on Cordova land, but when he asked whether he should look for Don Rodrigo, they merely shrugged their shoulders and pointed vaguely in one direction or another, entirely without conviction. Although he was impatient, he could do no more than follow the road, rarely able now that he had left the plain to see more than a hundred yards ahead of him. So it was that he came upon a crossroads rather abruptly, and saw the crowd gathered there only a minute or two before he joined it. He leaped from the saddle in order to shove his way through the throng, whose numbers were still being swelled by people running from neighbouring fields. He did not know until he had got past them exactly what he would find. When he did manage to see what it was that was the centre of the attraction, he could not judge how utter his failure had been. For Rodrigo Cordova was nowhere to be seen. There was only poor Theo Calvi, who had listened to his songs with such keen attention. The youth would listen to music no more, for he had been injured beyond all possibility of recovery. His hacked and battered body had been propped up against the empty scaffold which stood by the crossroads. Beside him, on a boulder, there was written in blood, in a curiously childish hand, the single word, Quixana. Chapter 6 Orfeo rounded on the crowd and began to shout at them. Who saw this done? Who saw the ones who brought him here? No one replied, and they began to fall back, as if regretting that they had come at all. They did not know Orfeo, but he had come on horseback, and he wore a sword. They were afraid of him, and afraid to say whatever they knew, if, indeed, they knew anything at all. Where is Don Rodrigo? said Orfeo angrily. Which way did they take him? Still, no one replied, and now he saw that some of them were whispering, and that one or two looked darkly at him. They had no reason to think that he was their enemy, but he saw how very frightened they were. There was none among them who would know how to read, but still they knew what name it was which had been written in Theo Calvi's blood, and they knew too what reprisals the writing of that name might bring down upon the innocent and the guilty alike. Orfeo realised that when this news spread, it would send a wave of panic across the whole realm. If this really was the first blow in a campaign of terror to be waged by the enemies of the Duke, then it was surely a foolish one, especially if those enemies had men within the castle who could easily strike a deadlier one. On the other hand, perhaps its real purpose was to spread alarm among the Duke's supporters, and give a licence to the Duke's soldiers and Scabera's secret police to ride boldly where they would, over any man's estates, in search of treason and resentment. If Rodrigo Cordova were to be held for ransom, what would that ransom be? And to whom must it be paid? Orfeo saw that the web of intrigue which he had been advised to avoid might well be more complicated than he had earlier suspected, 
and that he was now dangerously close to an entanglement from which it would be very difficult to escape. But Rodrigo Cordova was a man he liked, who had made every effort to befriend him, and Theo Calvi had liked his playing. He heard words sounding in his head, which said, Reckless man, beware! It was a chorus in which many voices seemed to join. He looked wildly about, seething with frustration. The crowd was already breaking up, its members running to their homes to make what preparation they could for the dark time which was to come. None would say a word to him. But then he heard from behind him a strange whisper, which said, Orfeo! He whirled around and saw that Calvi still had breath in him, and had opened his eyes. Quickly, he knelt beside the stricken man, wondering whether his wounds might possibly let him live. But Calvi was very nearly gone, and even the effort of speaking seemed likely to destroy him. Nevertheless, the youth was trying desperately to speak, and Orfeo bent his head to make sure that he did not miss a word, however faintly pronounced. "'Go west,' whispered the dying man. "'Killed one, wounded others. "'Slow them down. "'Dare not leave them to be found. "'West, watch for blood.' Though he fought hard to keep his eyes open, Calvi could not do it. Unconsciousness claimed him again and though Orfeo knew that the wounded man was not yet dead, he also knew that he would probably never wake again. Furiously, he rounded on the remaining onlookers again. He pointed at the nearest man and said, Do what you can! If he lives, there is gold in it for those who help him! Then he pushed his way between them, and caught the rein of his waiting steed. The animal was tired and thirsty, but there was no time to lose. Even though the other company was slowed by a prisoner and its members further inconvenienced by their own dead and wounded, it would not be easy to catch up with them. As he urged the ancient war-horse along the road to the west, he wondered what he could do if he did catch up, now that his original mission, to deliver a warning, had come to naught. But he did not pause to debate the matter with himself. He was in the affair now, and his wrath had been roused by the sight of poor Calvi, murdered to lend emphasis to a word scrawled by an illiterate, a mere move in some vicious game of trickery and treachery. Orfeo had seen men killed before, some of them for reasons no better and no worse, but that did not make it easier to bear that he had ridden hard to try to save this boy and had failed by a matter of minutes to reach him in time to warn him of impending ambush. If there was a chance of saving Rodrigo Cordova, he intended to take it, no matter what the risk. This road was like the one which had brought him into the realm only two days before. It was a meagre thing of ruts and animal tracks, connecting paths which led to outlying farms and hamlets. Though there were grapevines growing on the hillside terraces, there were also reaches of clustered thorn bushes 
and scree slopes for any kind of cultivation. His eyes searched the road ahead for splashes of blood, but he could see none. He knew that Calvi had not been killed at the crossroads, but simply taken there to be abandoned. The men appointed to the job must have been uninjured, and though they had come this way, they had left no obvious sign. If they had left the road in order to meet their companions, he would not be able to tell which way they had gone. After a while, though, he did catch sight of a smear of blood upon a rounded stone by the roadside, and guessed that either someone with a wound had sat on it for a while, waiting for friends, or that a body, wrapped in a blood-soaked cloak, had rested there a while. He dismounted and stood beside the stone, looking this way and that, hoping to see which way the company had gone when they left the spot. He could see no other bloodstains, but the ground on the slope below the road, which led down into a wooded valley, had been recently disturbed, and he reckoned that the men who had captured Cordova had gone that way. He followed, picking his way carefully. When he reached the stream, he let his mount pause to drink, but then pulled the animal's head about and forced it onwards. The horse, remembering its training, obeyed him without protest, but now they were among the trees they could only proceed at a walk in any case. Orfeo followed the course of the stream as it wound along the valley floor, going against the direction of its flow. About a mile further on, he saw from a distance that there was a hut not far ahead, and he promptly dismounted. After tethering the horse, he approached the hut on foot, creeping along very carefully. When he came close, he saw that there were four more horses loosely secured beside the hut, on a long rein so that they could graze and go down to drink from the stream. The fact that there were only four immediately gave him hope that the other party had split into two, with some of the number returning to the town while others remained here, including, he assumed, those who were hurt. But had the ones who had left taken Rodrigo Cordova with them. The hut was a crude one, with no windows, and its condition was so poor that part of the ill-thatched roof had fallen in. It could be no more than a temporary hiding-place, to which the other men must intend to return, possibly with a healer, or with the man who had dispatched them on their violent mission. Orfeo moved around the hut to a tall tree which overlooked it at the rear. He climbed up into its branches, continuing until he was high enough to see through the hole in the injured roof. Through the gap he could see a pallet of straw with someone lying on it, but the interior of the hut was too deeply shadowed to allow him to see whether it was a bound prisoner or a corpse. Nor could he judge with any conviction how many other men might be waiting inside the hut. There was a hollow, where the branch on which he perched met the trunk of the tree. Moss grew upon the debris which clung there. He took up a handful of the moss and crushed it in his hand until it was a compact ball. Then he threw it over the hut, aiming for a bush near to the door. 
It rattled the leaves loudly enough to attract attention, and he saw two men rush out, swords at the ready, looking quickly around, though they did not think to look behind and upwards. One of them had his left arm bound, though his sword arm was uninjured. Orfeo felt certain that these two must have been in the company of guardsmen, which had passed him on the road from the castle that morning. But they were not in the Duke's livery now. They were dressed as anonymously as he was himself. Someone called to them from within the hut, petulantly, and they replied, saying that there was no one to be seen. Orfeo came down to the ground again. As soundlessly as he could, he drew his sword from its scabbard. Then he made his way to the back wall of the hut, treading very carefully. He would have liked to get up onto the roof, but there was no way he could do it without betraying his presence, so he worked his way slowly around to a position just outside the door. Then he picked up a handful of earth and threw it at the same bush. Once again the armed men popped out, staring hard at the spot from which the noise had come. Orfeo had his sword already raised above his head, and brought the hilt down hard on the back of the nearest man's head. The soldier cursed as he fell, and Orfeo knew that he had failed to knock the man out. But as he sprawled in the dust, Orfeo was able to deliver a hard kick to the outside of his knee before bounding into the open space to face the other swordsman, the man whose left arm was already bandaged. His opponent had a heavy sword which was designed for slashing rather than thrusting, and he swung at Orfeo with all the artlessness of a peasant wielding a pitchfork. Orfeo dodged the blow with ease and was able to thrust from a safe distance, while the other was off balance. The point of his rapier pinked the other's sword arm, and though the wound was by no means a crippling one, it must have hurt a good deal, all the more because it was one of a pair. The man Orfeo had kicked was staggering to his feet now, but with his head ringing and his leg unsure whether it could bear his weight, he was in no condition to balance himself for a proper blow. Orfeo danced around so that he was equidistant from both opponents. He was at least three inches taller than either of the men he faced, and his uncommonly long arms gave him a further advantage in terms of reach. The point of the rapier licked out, once, twice, thrice, with the speed of a striking serpent. One thrust caught the staggering man in the throat, and sent him down choking on his own blood. The second cut the other man in the breast and made him lurch backwards, while the weight of his weapon dragged his arm down to leave him no defence at all. The third took advantage of this conspicuous opening by driving into his belly, just below the ribcage. A third man had appeared in the doorway of the hut, but he was already hurt too, much worse than his companion with the bandaged arm. His right leg was so badly cut and patched that he could only stand by supporting himself against the doorway. He had a sword in his hand, but no obvious determination to use it now that he had seen what Orfeo could do with his blade. The man lowered the blade to signify his disinterest before Orfeo could thrust at him. 
Who, in the name of all the gods, are you? He demanded resentfully. What business have you here? I might ask the same of you, replied Orfeo lightly. I think you have taken off your colours in order to hide your own identity and make a secret of your own business. The man, whose arm and belly he had cut, was writhing on the ground, moaning. You must see to your friend, said Orfeo to the man in the doorway, as he pulled the stricken man's weapon away from his foot and took it into his own hand. But throw your sword into that bush before you move a step, and go carefully. The man with the hurt leg did as he was told, throwing his weapon away and lurching forward to kneel beside his companion. The man who had been cut in the throat did not move. He was dead. Orfeo moved to the doorway and looked quickly into the hut while keeping one eye on the injured soldiers. Inside there was a body lying on the floor, apparently dead. The man on the pallet whose form he had glimpsed through the roof was tightly bound but not gagged and he exclaimed with surprise when he saw who it was that stood there. Master Orfeo, he said. Then, when he had had a moment to recover his wits, he said, I must be living in one of your stories, my friend, for I could never have expected when I rode forth this morning that I would first be seized by highwaymen, then rescued within the hour. Do you know who these men are, my lord? asked Orfeo. I believe I do, said Rodrigo, as Orfeo moved into the hut, stepping over the corpse, though they have taken off their uniforms. Orfeo cut away the prisoner's bond with the captured weapon, then gave it to him for his future use. They went outside together to see what had become of their enemies. The two wounded men were still together, in evident distress. Should we kill them? asked Orfeo. There may be a slender chance of keeping the secret of my coming here, though I was seen by half a hundred men on the road, and at least a dozen by the crossroads, where they left poor Calvi. Dead? asked Don Rodrigo. Not quite. He lived long enough to send me after you, but I do not think he could have lived long after that. I told your field workers to summon help, but I had no hope. For a moment or two, Cordova seemed half inclined to butcher the injured men in reprisal for what had been done to him and to his friend, but he took no more than half a step towards them before relenting on this decision. He paused for a moment, then said to Orfeo, Better let them tell their story to someone who might help them. I hope they tell it to so many that the story is broadcast throughout the town, for I would like to have it generally known what work they came to do. My men will carry poor Calvi to his own house, where his mother will see to him, whether he be alive or dead. Orfeo nodded. He had no appetite for the cold-blooded slaughter of men who had laid down their arms, and was glad to hear Cordova's decision. Should we question them? he asked. It would waste time, said Rodrigo sourly, and I dare say they are practised liars. 
We both know whose colours they wore, but whether they were traitors to those colours is a question which might be better answered by the course of events than by their crafty lips. Then he turned from Orfeo to address the stricken men, saying, If you can, you should quit this place, for I think your master will not be quite as kind as I have been. He will want to seal your lips, now that his scheme has gone awry. Orfeo saw from the expression in their eyes that they believed it, and perhaps the fear of what might yet be done to them wiped out what gratitude they might otherwise have felt, because they did not thank Rodrigo Cordova for the mercy which he showed. Come, said Orfeo, we must take the best of their horses, and lead the one which brought me here. I hope that you will know where to go, for I do not know what whirlpool of intrigue it is in which I have immersed myself, and must trust myself now to your care. Rodrigo Cordova took the lead when they had mounted up, and Orfeo followed him. First of all they went back to the road where Orfeo had found the tell-tale bloodstain, but then the youth hesitated, and when he set off again he left the road to lead his companion across country. Orfeo had expected him to head northeast towards his own estate, but in fact he went south, towards Zaragoz. While they rode at a careful pace, with Orfeo's former mount behind them on a long rein, Orfeo told Cordova about the words he had overheard when he had sent him forth on his errand, and what he had seen en route. Did you recognize the voice? asked Cordova anxiously. I could not, Orfeo replied. Of all the voices in the castle, I have heard but two, Skibera's and Semhaza's. I am sure that it was not Skibera who gave the order, and would be certain that it was not Semhaza either, save that I am very wary of wizards and their tricks. Can you swear also that it was not your friend Archangelo? He too is a spellcaster, Orfeo pointed out, but it was not like any speech of his that I have heard. And besides, I think Archangelo is a prisoner beneath the castle, held in a secret cell far worse than the ones where I was lodged. If only you had seen the man, exclaimed the young man. Ba-ba-ba-bop! If only you had seen the man, exclaimed the young man in exasperation. Only be thankful that he did not see me, replied Orfeo. But there is another way to approach the question, is there not? What enemy have you who might gain from this? Remember that they were prepared to kill you if they had to, but preferred to take you alive. Was that for ransom, or some other purpose? In Zaragoz, said Rodrigo bitterly, a man may have many enemies and never know them all. There is hatred and mistrust in the blood of every man, engraved there by centuries of dispute and betrayal. The Cordovas have been loyal to the Diavillas for many generations to earn the enmity of the Quixanas. As you heard last night, 
There is a special rancour to add to that. For rumour says that a secret passage extends from the Cordova house into the caves which are the bowels of the castle, and that it was such a secret route which the assassins used when they toppled the last Quixana duke in the time of my great-grandfather, said the young aristocrat. You are my friend, and I would not have you address me as servant to master. I give you my hand, and beg you to call me Rodrigo. So saying, the young man held out his hand, so that Orfeo was able to reach across and take it, briefly. It was not the first time that a nobleman had offered him friendship, but he knew that such condescension was rare in tiny realms like Zaragoz, where every man had an exaggerated consciousness of his own station. I do not mean to doubt you, Rodrigo, said Orfeo, but if we are to unravel this mystery, then we must acknowledge what is true. Is there a passage within the crag which connects your house to the castle? Was it used in the coup of which Archangelo spoke? I honestly do not know, replied Rodrigo. As I have said, the Cordovas have long been loyal to the Diavillas, and if my ancestor could have served the cause, he would have done so. But if there was such a passage, the new duke would certainly have closed it once he had used it. I know nothing either of any curse placed upon my house. And what of the rest of Archangelo's story? Was the Quixana duke a man of justice, slain by a tyrant? Rodrigo Cordova laughed. Justice is a relative thing, he replied. In every dispute at law, the winner claims that the end of justice has been served, while the loser cries cheat. All those who resent the strong hand of a ruler call him tyrant, and whenever they can find a pretender to his position, that pretender becomes in their eyes a paragon of all the political virtues. You are a much-travelled man, Orfeo, and you must have seen that these are the ways of the world. Perhaps replied Orfeo, without enthusiasm. But I have known men who were certainly tyrants, and others who held to better principles. For now, we must confine our attention to the present case. Is it your belief that there is some traitor within the walls of the castle, who was spurred to action by the prophecies which Archangelo uttered in your house last night? and that Calvive's murder and your seizure were the first blows in a campaign against the Duke. It would be better if that were so, answered Rodrigo with a sigh, for if it is not, then I must look for enemies among the Duke's loyal servants. If those men were sent by Scabera or Semhaza, or by Marsilio himself, then my escape can hardly be reckoned to end the matter." yet I cannot see what any of them would gain by hurting me. I had thought myself a friend of them all. I cannot see much sense of it either, admitted Orfeo, nor can I begin to understand what happened last night. If Archangelo came here to spark a rebellion in the name of Quixana, 
It must have been foolish in the extreme for him to declare his aim so publicly. Did he come to your house for a different reason? And if so, was it his speech which had attracted the attention of unknown enemies to you? I do not know, replied the youth. I, I cannot begin to understand. Perhaps we should have put those scoundrels to the question after all. Perhaps, said Orfeo uneasily. But I doubt that they know any more than we do about the reasoning behind their orders. I am, as you say, a much-travelled man, and I have heard many tales of treason and rebellion. If there is one point on which history and romance seem to agree, it is that when melodramatic messages are written in blood, they are likely to be lies and libels. The men who killed your friend and made you captive were the Duke's men, and the simplest conclusion was that they were about his business. Perhaps he simply needed to contrive an atrocity to prove that any who are sympathetic to the cause of Quixana are murderers and terrorists, and to quell any opposition to the methods he will use to root them out. You must ask yourself, Rodrigo, whether men like Marsilio de Avila and Estevan Scabera would hesitate to sacrifice a pawn like Theo Calvi, or even a scrupulous friend like yourself, if they thought a greater game might be played. Perhaps it is your very innocence and goodness which made them choose you as a target. When Orfeo looked to see what effect his words had had, he saw that Rodrigo Cordova was frowning very deeply. If the younger man was not convinced, he was certainly reduced to perplexity. But this was a story which he did not want to believe. You must remember that I am an outsider here, said Orfeo. I see with a more distanced eye but I am also ignorant of the true situation. When Archangelo mentioned the name Quixana, while we walked together on the road, he implied that the Quixanas had been all but destroyed when their last duke was overturned. Who, then, would be the champion of any revolt? Rodrigo sighed again. This is a small nation, he said but it has a long history. Marriages across the centuries make complicated patterns of relationship, which are sometimes in dispute. The scribes in the castle use their records to prove all claims of inheritance, but the records do not always speak as clearly as they might. Among the nobility, some younger sons and daughters always leave the realm to make lives elsewhere and their descendants are often unrecorded here. There are probably lines of descent different from those which are presently recognised, which might be traced by a scribe who looked at the records with an eye which favoured Quixana against Diavilla. There are certainly lines of descent which might be invented by those with sufficient imagination to do it. But the one person who is universally acknowledged as a blood descendant of the last Quixana duke, and bears his name, is the Lady Seraphima Quixana, 
who is a prisoner in the castle, Orfeo exclaimed. She is in the castle, to be sure, said Rodrigo, but whether she is a prisoner is a different matter. Marsilio has become anxious for the stability of his realm since he succeeded his father, and I think that he would like to erase the legacy of hatred which the name Quixana carries by, by another means than wholesale slaughter. He sent his emissaries to Gualcazar some years ago, when the lady was but a child, in order to arrange her betrothal to his son. It is believed throughout the realm that the marriage will take place when the Lady Seraphima comes of age, but there have been rumours that she is not altogether happy with the prospect. Orfeo remembered what the Lady Morella had said to him about having seen Archangelo some years before in Gualcazar. When does the Lady Seraphima come of age? he asked. Soon, I think. I do not know the exact day, but this will certainly be the year. In that case, said Orfeo, we have a ready explanation of the timing of this wretched affair. That must surely be what brought Archangelo here to try his art against Semhaza. But if he has already failed, it is difficult to see how anyone else could make a serious attempt to release the lady from her prison. The sorcerer seemed ready enough to believe that I knew nothing of any wider conspiracy. But I suppose... He may be anxious lest Archangelo has not come here alone, and may be waiting for a more powerful magician to take Archangelo's place. I know nothing of this, said Cordova tiredly, and I do not see what it has to do with me. I am loyal to the Duke, and I cannot believe that Marsilio could be so foolish as to conclude that because Archangelo came to my house, I must be in league with the Quixanas. No, said Orfeo grimly. I do not think it is as simple as that. But, my friend, we must decide, in spite of our ignorance, exactly what we should do next. I think we must decide now, for we are coming close to Zaragoz again, and we will certainly be seen and recognised if we go through the gate of the town. This adventure did not end with your release. It has hardly begun. Your enemies, whoever they may be, will surely strike again. I know that, answered Cordova, in a tone which was equally dour. But I cannot go into hiding. Were I to ride back to my estates, I could be no more certain of having men I can trust about me than if I were in my house on the hill and I would be no less vulnerable to an assassin's dagger. My enemies, whoever they are, have tried to act treacherously against me, but I am not that kind of man. I would rather bring them out into the open if I can, where I can confront them face to face. I intend to return to Zaragoz, openly and boldly. You need not come with me if you are afraid. This is not your affair, and I can make sure that you have safe conduct to the border. Orfeo considered this for a few seconds, but he quickly saw that, just as Rodrigo could not be certain of his safety wherever he was, so he could not be certain of his own 
even though he left the borders of the realm. In any case, the fact that there was so much he did not understand made him reluctant to let the puzzle alone. No, my lord, he said, forgetting for a moment the equality of friendship which had been offered to him. I will not do that just yet. After all, my loot is in your house, and how am I to live without it? And I have promised, have I not, to play for the Lady Veronique on the Night of Masks, to which you Estallians look forward with such enthusiasm. Rodrigo Cordova turned in his saddle to look into his companion's eyes, and Orfeo knew that the young man was staring straight through the mask of his irony into his very heart. Thank you, my friend, said Rodrigo. I will be proud to have you by my side. And if my enemies prove too strong for me, I swear that I will do all in my power to see that they do not harm you. Orfeo was grateful for this promise, though he knew well enough how difficult it might be to keep. Well, he thought, I am in the web now, and will not escape until its strands are ripped apart to reveal whatever monsters are lurking at its heart. And if chaos has Zaragoz in its grip, let us pray that the forces of law may yet prevail against it. Chapter 7 As they rode through the streets of the town, Orfeo looked about him all the while, wondering whether any who saw them would be surprised or alarmed, and whether news of Rodrigo Cordova's homecoming might already be winging its way to the heights of the crack by mysterious means. But he saw nothing untoward in the way that any man looked up at them as they passed by, and there was no sign that rumour of the murder of Theo Calvi had yet been broadcast in the streets. They had come through the gate unchallenged, and, as their horses mounted the narrow road to Cordova's house, they were saluted most politely by all those whom custom forced to acknowledge their presence. While their horses were being stabled, Cristoforo came out to meet them, and Rodrigo immediately instructed him to send a messenger to the castle to summon Estevan Skebera. Privately, Orfeo wondered whether this was altogether a wise thing to do, although he had declared his certainty that the man who gave the instruction for Calvi's murder had not been Scabera, he was by no means convinced that Scabera was not behind the scheme. Still, if young Cordova was determined to take the bull by the horns, then the minister was certainly the man he must first confront. Rodrigo led Orfeo into the house by the same door which had admitted Archangelo the night before. It gave direct entry into the hall, which had been used as a dining-room and ballroom. As they passed the spot where Archangelo had been struck down, Orfeo looked up at the balcony from which the magical blast had been fired, and was suddenly disposed to wonder about the exact circumstances of that event. Rodrigo, he said, ignoring the start of surprise which the steward Cristoforo gave when he heard the familiar mode of address. Last night I saw Scabera signal to the man who fetched the sorcerer. 
could not have come from the castle, even if there is a secret way. He was already in the house, was he not? Yes, he was, answered Rodrigo. He came with the party from the castle, as he often does, but not to dance. Rodrigo smiled, but mirthlessly. Semhaza does not care for dancing, he said, and if he did, I think he might spoil the pleasure which the others took. He is not a handsome man, and you have seen that he can hurt with the power of his will. Why, then, does he come here? He likes to look at the books and scrolls which my ancestors gathered here. Many were once owned by wizards, though my family has not kept a wizard of its own for three generations now. Were it not for Semhaza, the books would remain unread, and I think that even he can only read a few of them, for they are written in many different languages. Christophero, who has sufficient skill in the literary arts to keep accounts of all my business affairs, cannot make head nor tail of any but a few of them. The steward gave a sad nod to confirm this judgment of his relative incompetence. "'May I see the books?' asked Orfeo. "'Of course. Can you read, then?' "'Like your steward,' said Orfeo. "'I can read the tongue which we speak, and write it after a clumsy fashion. But little more than that. Nevertheless, I have a certain interest in books.' Shrugging his shoulders, for it was obviously not an interest which he shared, Rodrigo led Orfeo up the principal staircase of the house, and then along a carpeted corridor, which led to a wing beyond the rooms which were commonly used. There he unlocked the door of a small room, using a key which he took from one of the recesses where candles would be set after dark. The room had a glazed window, but the diamond-shaped pieces of glass were heavily begrimed, and the room seemed a dark and dingy place. It was narrow, with wide shelves to either side, on which books were stored in untidy heaps. There was a table in the centre of the room, with two chairs at either end, and the tabletop was littered with candle trays and the stubs of candles as well as several scrolls, three inkwells, and an assortment of quills. There was a good deal of dust on the tabletop, too, but its pattern was irregular, sitting much deeper here than there, occasionally having been wiped away from a little area before one or other of the chairs. There was an unpleasant odour in the air, which Orfeo immediately connected to the noxious stink of the sorcerer's breath. Though it was in Rodrigo Cordova's house, this room was Semhaza's, if it was anyone's. And yet the house, if what Archangelo had said was true, had been bewitched by some Quixana spellcaster to work against the cause of the Diavillas. Then he remembered that Archangelo had not said that, but had actually said instead that the house had been charged to serve the cause of justice, and to react against any who dared to work dark magic within its walls. Was that, he wondered, why Archangelo had come here, 
to provoke the working of dark magic, and had Semhaza often come to study here in the hope of discovering a way to set aside the curse which had been set upon the house. Orfeo ran his finger along the binding of a nearby book, and found it black with dust and fungus. The parchments were literally rotting on the shelves. It was not that the room was damp, for it was dry as a bone, but that dryness had not kept decay at bay. After all, said Rodrigo, as he read disapproval in Orfeo's roaming eye, parchment is but a kind of flesh, and it is the destiny of all flesh that it should return to dust in the end. What does it matter when no one can read them? The men who wrote them intended that they should be read, murmured Orfeo, and it seems that Semhaza has tried to penetrate their mysteries. Archangelo spoke, you will recall, of a learned man among the traitors who betrayed the Quixana Duke, who learned more about the history of this mountain than has been known before. Perhaps the book from which he learned it is here. I do not know, said Rodrigo. I have kept the books because they belonged to my father and my father's father. They are part and parcel of the house of Cordova, which I hold in trust from my son and my son's son. But my father never cared for them, and nor do I. I saw no reason to hide them from Semhaza. When he heard Rodrigo use the phrase House of Cordova, Orfeo saw what he should have seen all along, which was that the word house had more than one meaning. Archangelo had said of the defeated wizards who had helped Quixana rule that they had cursed this house, and then had gone on to imply that he meant the building itself by talking about its walls. But Esteban Scabera may not have understood the words that way, and may have thought that the curse was upon the family of Cordova, and not the walls of the house in which they lived. Was that why the Duke's men had been sent against this loyal servant? I am not sure that Semhaza's curiosity is a harmless thing, said Orfeo cautiously. Do you know what kind of wizardry he practices? Kind, replied Rodrigo. I hardly know what kinds there are. All wizardry is alike to those who have no magic, though I think that the greater part of it is mere trickery. I know that the common folk dislike him and and call him an evil man who has demons to command, but evil is like justice. Where the unfortunate see evil, the fortunate see only good, and the common folk see demons in every peculiar shadow. Semhaza likes to be feared, like all his kind, and is pleased when others call him sorcerer and, and suspect him of acquaintance with vile gods and godlings. I do not say that he is a good man but I do not think him half so black as he is painted. I wish I could agree with you, my friend, said Orfeo quietly. I know well enough how rumours see demons where there is naught but darkness, and I have known many spellcasters who have taken great delight in seeming more powerful than they are, 
encouraging false beliefs in their ability to command dark powers. Anyone who believes every story which is told of men who deal with demons is a fool. But I think that is to the great advantage of those who really do make pacts with chaos. And I know that some peculiar shadows do indeed mark the work of demons. I cannot believe in all the wonders which are spoken of in travellers' tales, and have certainly never seen such things as dragons or manticores, but there is something in the wisdom of lore and legend which I trust, and I know that there are powers in the world which men do well to fear. Perhaps there are, answered Rodrigo, in distant and savage lands near the world's edge. But this is Astalia, which is a civilized place. You are a good man, Rodrigo, said Orfeo and I wish that those to whom you owe fealty were as good as you. But Semhaza and Morella de Arlette belong to a different kind, and I suspect that they have brought others into the morass of their corruption. When he looked carefully to see what effect this statement had on Rodrigo Cordova, Orfeo saw that the other was not disposed to believe him. He was not entirely surprised, given that the young man was reputed to be enamoured of Veronique de Avila, and given also that he must have known Semhaza all his life, and grown up thinking of him as a friend, no matter how repulsive his face might be. "'Would you have me destroy these books?' asked Cordova. "'I would not like to do it, despite that I do not care for them at all.' Orfeo shook his head though he did not like to think that a man like Simhaza might find the means here to increase his power, nor did he like to think of knowledge being destroyed. And he believed that there might indeed be knowledge here which could be put to use by those who could learn to decipher it. He had been in university towns in the Empire, and had seen much larger libraries than this one, and which seemed infinitely better kept but he knew that they consisted mostly of the routine produce of copyists and paid scriveners. Never before had he seen such an accumulation of very old books as this room contained, and he knew that they would be reckoned a fine treasure by any honest scholar of the empire, all the more so because most were written in languages forgotten and arcane. Orfeo sighed and said, how many secrets are buried in this room, not needing lock and key to keep them in? Words by the thousands, written by those whose main purpose was to keep them for a few privileged eyes. What a world it would be, Don Rodrigo, if those who had knowledge were to write it plainly, for every man to read, for then it would be in the interest of the many rather than the few, to learn their letters and be privy to the accumulated wisdom of the generations. How then might men make progress? Instead, the knowledge which men have is hoarded thus, condemned to die and rot and crumble as their own frail bodies die and rot and crumble. No wonder we are naked to corrosions of the soul, my lord, 
when we consign our best thoughts and our worst to such tombs as this, where only such necromancers as Semhaza can bear to come in quest of their resurrection. Even so, my friend, I beg you not to destroy what you have. It is too precious. Orfeo came out of the room, wiping grime from his fingers onto the hem of his tunic. I wonder, he said, and then hesitated. What do you wonder? asked Rodrigo. I wonder whether Archangelo knew that Semhaza would be here last night, and whether what happened was part of his plan. I think Semhaza and Skebara might be wondering about that too. They may be anxious that their victory was too easy. I do not think so, said the younger man. Is it not more likely that he intended to deliver his dire prophecy than to disappear into the night? Perhaps, said Orfeo. But he did not seem surprised when Semhaza struck him down. They reached the head of the stairway again and descended in a calm manner. When they had nearly reached the bottom, they heard the sound of hooves clattering in the narrow courtyard, and, within a minute, the main door of the house was opened by the guard which Rodrigo had set there, admitting Estevan Skebera with two men-at-arms of his own. As Rodrigo Cordova strode forward to meet the minister, Orfeo hung back, and watched the two men come together. While they looked at each other, Skibera's expression was all friendship and concern, but when they clasped hands in greeting, they came so close that Skibera was able to look over Cordova's shoulder at the spot where Orfeo stood. In that brief moment, Orfeo saw the expression change, and it was as though the hostility of it emitted a brief, cold blast which struck him in the face. That Skibera did not like him, he already knew, but he could not help but feel that there was far more in the foul glance than mere dislike. And when the other looked away, Orfeo formed the distinct impression from the way his gaze flickered right and left, then up and down, that Estevan Skibera was a worried and uneasy man who felt the course of events had perversely turned to his own disadvantage. "'I swear,' said Esteban Skibera, "'that when I find these men, and I do not say if I find them, "'that I will make them talk. "'I have a way with men's tongues, as you know.' Skibera was sitting in an armchair, sipping from a goblet of wine, Rodrigo Cordova sat opposite, apparently at ease, though Orfeo, who sat nearby, knew that the young man's mind was very active. The Lady Marguerite was also present, having been informed of all that had happened to her son, and she seemed every bit as uneasy as the minister, perhaps for very different reasons. "'I know how you treat your prisoners, Esteban,' said Cordova gently, but I know only too well that a man in pain will confess to anything which is put into his head. I could have questioned the two we left alive, 
but I would never have been sure that what they told me was the truth. Simhaza can judge the truth of what men say, said Skibera confidently, turning his stare to Orfeo. Simhaza undoubtedly has many ways of discovering the truth, replied Rodrigo, and I have no doubt that he is making most urgent inquiries on the Duke's behalf at this very moment. If there is a plot against the Duke which involves men in his own service, then Semhaza will surely discover it. Unless, of course, Semhaza is with the plotters. Scabera scowled at the suggestion and shook his head. No, he said firmly. I could doubt any other man in the realm, but not Semhaza. I cannot see why not, said Rodrigo who was intent on making Scabera more uncomfortable than he already was. He is a very powerful wizard, is he not? I have often wondered why it is that wizards do not use their power over their will to seize the crowns from the heads of common men. I cannot believe that they have no ambition when they sacrifice so much into their learning and take such terrible risks in their dealings with demons and and the legions of the undead. The ambitions of wizards is not towards temporal power, Scabera told him. It takes them in another direction. Semhaza is as loyal a friend to the dear villas as you are yourself, Don Rodrigo. There is another way to look at it, said Orfeo mildly. Scabera looked at him with affected contempt implying by his disdain that a common man ought not to interrupt his betters in such a fashion. But Cordova said, What is it? I have heard it argued, Orfeo continued, in the same mild tone, that wizards are already the true rulers of most earthly realms, and that the men who actually sit on thrones are mere instruments of power whose duty it is to deflect and bear for them the burden of hatred and mistrust which naturally accumulates to the debit of oppressors. If a man were to believe one-tenth of all that he heard argued, Scabera repined, he would be not a man at all but a radish. There is nothing more absurd than the resentful arguments of the envious and the stupid. Oh, you are right said Orfeo, with little evident trace of irony. You are undoubtedly right, my lord, to argue thus. Scabera looked at Rodrigo Cordova, his stare quite stony. If there is one man in the realm I could not trust, Don Rodrigo, he said, it is the one who sits at your elbow and pretends to be your friend. Semhaza examined him last night and pronounced him honest, but the spellcaster was tired and may have been more easily misled than on another occasion. I have heard that the player hurt a child this morning by striking him about the head and making him fall, and I cannot help but wonder whether his tale of a mysterious conversation overheard in darkness might not be a malicious invention." "'You think this player is a wizard, then?' said Rodrigo, mockingly. "'Wizard enough to make a fool of Semhaza. 
Scabera merely scowled and made no reply. How is the child? asked Orfeo. He recovered from the blow, replied Scabera ungraciously. And did he say that someone hit him? Orfeo reposted, with the tiniest emphasis on the word someone. No, said Scabera. He said that he stumbled and fell. But I do not think he was telling the truth. Then you must send him to Semhazar, said Orfeo, and let the sorcerer make sure. Though I do not think he can possibly be the mastermind in this plot to murder the Duke's loyal subjects. Scabera stood up and placed the goblet of wine unfinished on the table nearby. I must about my business, he said gruffly. There is treason in the realm, and I must root it out. I do not need to tell you, Don Rodrigo, that you must be on your guard at all times. Trust no one, I beg of you, including myself, if you will. Wherever we may choose to point our accusing fingers, one thing remains certain. A plot which extends into the castle itself can extend into every house in Zaragoz. No man should sleep too soundly until this affair is finished, lest he fail to awake. Rodrigo Cordova stood too, and went to the door with his guest. Orfeo remained in the room until his host returned. He looked at the lady to see what her reaction might be to the guarded hostility of the conversation, but she did not say anything to him. Nor did Rodrigo Cordova say anything about the minister's attitude when he returned, though it had been plain all along that he did not like it. We still do not know the source of the danger which threatens you, Don Rodrigo, said Orfeo softly, and while that is the case, the minister's advice is good. Be on your guard against everyone. I have not yet asked Cristoforo to move your belongings to a better room, Cordova said, deliberately passing over what Orfeo had said. Would you like me to do it now? No, Orfeo replied. I shall be quite comfortable there. He knew that the remark about his room was a hint that he should go, though the hour was not so very late, and so he stood up. No doubt young Cordova had a great deal to think about, and felt that he could do it better in solitude. But the Lady Marguerite came to her feet also, and spoke to him. You have saved my son's life today, she said, and we owe you a greater debt than we can easily repay. May this house protect you, as it has always protected me. She spoke, of course, as one who had married into the house of Cordova, and so had come under its protection. Orfeo wondered, privately, how much benefit the protection had really been to her, and how much benefit it could continue to be. Now that some secret curse might have been awakened in Cordovan walls, or Cordovan blood, there was a sword-bearing servant waiting in the corridor when he came out, which did not surprise him, given that the staff had been called to arms and placed to keep a watch upon their master. Orfeo acknowledged the man's presence, then went up the main staircase.
There was another man on guard on the upper floor, who watched Orfeo as he went to the foot of the smaller stairway, which led to the servants' attics. The upper floors were dimly lit, by candles which were poorer than those used downstairs and fewer in number. They cast strange shadows in the alcoves and the doorways. It was easy to believe, as Orfeo looked about him here, that the ancient walls might somehow be alive, ready to awaken from their stillness. Whether there were demons hiding in the pools of darkness, he could not tell, but he had cause enough to feel uneasy as he searched for the little stairway which would take him up to his room. As he climbed that gloomy flight, he reflected that he was, in fact, very tired. That was only to be expected, given that he had had such an active day in hot pursuit of a more than usually active night. He felt in dire need of a period of quiet solitude, safe from all threats, where he could put aside the mysteries which had troubled him in favour of healing sleep. As he opened the door of his room and passed through it, though, he was promptly clubbed from behind, with sufficient force and precision to rob him instantly of his senses. Chapter 8 Orfeo was brought rudely back to consciousness by a bucketful of icy water which was poured over his head as he lay on a cold stone floor. His head felt very thick and heavy, and he could not immediately raise it from its uncomfortable resting place. But as soon as he stirred, his shoulders were grabbed and he was hauled unceremoniously to his feet held erect from behind by hands which felt as though they must be unnaturally large, he had to fight hard to keep his head from lolling sideways, but he managed in the end to hold it up. He blinked hard, and his vision gradually cleared. Then he saw that he was looking into the face of Estevan Skibera. Skibera, seeing that he was recognised, smiled. Orfeo looked down at the hands which gripped his arms, which were indeed the largest he had ever seen. Then he looked from side to side. He was in a gloomy cellar, whose air was dank and damp. It had no windows, and he guessed that it must be in the deepest regions of the castle. There was a big stone slab which served as a table, though it seemed more suited to be an altar and laid out on the slab in neat rows were various iron instruments, including pincers, broad-headed irons, knives, and crushing vices. His sword was also there, and the knife which he used when he cut meat or cheese. He tried, rather feebly, to return Skibera's smile. No rack, he said faintly. I had thought that Zaragoz was a civilised realm. Skibera's smile did not alter in the least. Zaragoz is not known for its carpenters, he said grimly. The trees grow too thin and crooked in our poor soil to yield an abundance of timber. My predecessors have been known to use common ladders for stretching, 
but in my reckoning that is a method best suited to the encouragement of women's tongues. Or have you been upon the rack before, and liked it? Perhaps that was how you came to be so tall and thin. He signalled then to his huge assistant, who released Orfeo's upper arms and grabbed his wrists instead. Orfeo could not struggle, for the wrists were tightly bound behind his back. While Orfeo concentrated on retaining his balance, the man behind him threaded a long rope around the one which bound him, knotting it around, and then threw the other end of the rope over an iron hook embedded in the ceiling. Then, standing back, he pulled the rope taut, so that Orfeo's bound arms were lifted up behind him, forcing his head forward. He tried to remain standing, but could not, and was lifted clear off the ground by the giant's tugging. The strain on his shoulders from being held aloft in that position was very great, and the subsequent twisting of his arms hurt him a good deal. He could only do his best not to struggle, thus to minimise the agony. His body began to rotate, but Scabera stopped it by putting a hand on Orfeo's shoulder. "'Are you racked enough now?' My friend, asked the minister, please do not fear for my servant. He is very strong and can hold you there as long as I ask him to. If you become bored, I will ask him to bounce you up and down a little. It is a game which he has enjoyed with several of my guests, and it never fails to amuse them. Sometimes they laugh so hard that their arms come out of their sockets at the shoulder. Oh! What tears they cry, and what songs they sing. I would wager that you would sing finer songs than most. So fine I might keep you here for ever, that I may hear your repertoire entire. But then Scabera signalled again to his servant, who let his prisoner down, so that his feet could touch the floor again. Scabera took his shoulder to help him stand erect. I am forgetting myself, said the minister, with mocking concern. I must not damage your hands, for the Lady Veronique would be hurt if you were too bruised to play the lute for her on the night of masks. Orfeo was too confused to plan what to say, and could only say what came into his head. Does Simhaza know that you have brought me here? he asked. Simhaza? exclaimed the other, laughing with delight. Do you think Semhaza would protect you? I fear that you mistook his friendly concern and the advice which he gave you. He commanded you not to meddle in our affairs, and you repaid his kindness in discovering your innocence by promptly becoming guilty. He would be very disappointed in you, if he knew. But for what it is worth... Your presence here is my own secret. You thought that I had used magic to steal you away from Don Rodrigo, did you not? You thought, no doubt, that it was a demon who plucked you from your room and flew with you out of the window. But no, it was only a man. And not an invisible one. No one sends a demon to perform a task which a man can do and no one uses magic when the tasks can be done without. Don Rodrigo has many loyal servants. 
but there are some of his company who owe a higher loyalty than that. This speech was long enough to allow Orfeo to recover some of his presence of mind, but not quite all. Have you only brought me here to hurt me, for your pleasure? he asked. Or had you some rational purpose in mind as well? He was trying to appear brave, though he knew how foolhardy it was to taunt his captor. I have a reason for everything, said the minister. What reason did you have for sending the Duke's men-at-arms to murder one of his loyal subjects and take another prisoner? The minister shook his head. You forget, my friend, that it is my turn to ask the questions now. Do you really think that I lied to Semhazza? asked Orfeo. Do you think that I could have lied to him? I do not know, said the other. I do not think so, but I might be wrong. Perhaps your friend, the man of law, enchanted your tongue. I cannot tell what ways magicians may have of deceiving one another. But this I do know, that you are no friend of Marsilio de Avila, and must be reckoned to be leagued against him. Because I saved his loyal subject from a vile plot. If I have proved myself today the friend of Rodrigo Cordova, does that not make me a friend of Marsilio de Avila too? If it does not, I would like to hear the reason why. You are too clever for your own good, my friend, hissed Scavera. But your reckoning will come soon enough, now that I have you. I cannot see that you need me, said Orfeo sourly. Indeed, I cannot see why you are anxious, when you have the priest of law safe and sound. Even as he said the words, he realized their significance, and Scabera could not keep his face straight enough to stop his prisoner seeing the truth. By all the gods, said Orfeo, you do not have him safe and sound, do you? Despite that Simhazan knocked him down, he had strength and cunning enough to escape your clutches. Aye, growled the minister. He escaped from this prison last night, while Simhazan was questioning you. Had he and I not been so occupied... I do not think he could have got away, which makes me think that you served his cause, knowingly or not. Orfeo held his tongue then, not wanting to tell the minister what other conjectures came into his mind. But he could not help but wonder whether Archangelo had gone into the hollow mountain, and whether Semhaza might be afraid of what he might find and do there and he could not help wondering either whether Semhaza might be anxious that his enemy would find the way within the crag which led to Rodrigo Cordova's house, and whether that had been the reason that the Duke's men had been sent to take Rodrigo prisoner. At last, he thought, he had begun to see the pattern which this web of intrigue had. But what good? could it possibly do him now? 
Semhaza has such faith in himself, said the minister, that he still believes you innocent. For myself, I do not care whether you are innocent or not. You have done what we warned you not to do, and now you must bear the consequences of that. Scabera's hand lay quietly on Orfeo's shoulder while he spoke, but when he finished, he lifted it to see if Orfeo could stand alone. Then, finding that Orfeo could stand, he took the hand away and carefully opened his prisoner's shirt by the cord which tightened the neck. Though it was not part of the player's finery, it was a flimsy garment, and when Scabera suddenly ripped at it, the material tore all the way down, leaving Orfeo's left breast bare. Scabera touched the nipple on the breast and said, How stupid the hand which shaped us was, to give to men what only women need and use. Do you not agree? It's no great inconvenience to have it there, Orfeo replied. You do not think so, said Scabera with a laugh. You are such a disagreeable man, Master Player, that I feel a need to make you see my point of view for once. So saying, the minister picked up from the stone table one of the several sets of pincers which were there, and... With one hand on each handle, he opened the jaws wide, placing them upon Orfeo's chest on either side of the useless nipple. He paused for a few seconds, permitting Orfeo to contemplate the prospect, and then he closed the jaw with a convulsive thrust, savagely crushing the flesh which they pinched. Orfeo screamed with agony and fainted dead away. Oddly enough, though he was sure that his senses had deserted him, he could still feel the pain, not only the agony beside his heart, but also the cruel wrenching of his wrists as he fell. It was not fair, he thought, as he seemed becalmed in a world of pure pain, that he could not find release, even in oblivion. But then, mercifully, he did and hoped that in finding it he was cheating his torturer of some small measure of his cruel satisfaction. So exhausted was poor Orfeo that his oblivion ultimately gave way to sleep, which no doubt did its healing work at last, but it seemed at the time no proper release, because his sleep was full of dreams, and the dreams were born of pain which made them nightmares. In those nightmares, the luckless player was put to the question more severely than he had been, in fact. Racked by ropes and rent by pincers, with Scabera's face, distorted by malice, forever thrusting itself into his to spit at him and laugh at his distress. Simhaza's face was there, too, distorted by that corruption of his being which marked him as a servant of things unknown and unnameable, but which gave him a power to hurt which was far beyond the crudity of Scabera's tools. 
Orfeo's sleep was such a hell of anguish, in fact, that it seemed a better release when he finally managed to thrust his soul back to the surface of wakefulness, where the pains which he felt were found to be ordinary after all. His wrists were sore, but no longer bound. There was a dull fire close to his heart. His whole body had been jarred and bruised. But all of this was superficial, and it was bearable. He opened his eyes to yellow candlelight, which would have seemed far dimmer but for the glister of the slime upon the walls of the chamber which contained him. The candle tray was close beside him, near to his head. He was lying on a thin-laid pallet of dirty straw, which did not entirely conceal the hardness of the cold stone floor. He lifted his head, but when he tried to move his legs, he found that one was caught at the ankle, and when he sat up, he saw that it was shackled, and that the shackle was chained to the wall close to the end of his makeshift bed. He could stand up and move about, but he was confined by a tether no more than half his own height. At first, the chamber seemed so large that this range seemed very meagre, but then he realised that his station was situated on a narrow ledge, no more than five feet wide, and that beyond the candle tray there was the rim of a dark, deep pit. The pit stank horribly, and from its depths there emerged a faint sound, part rustle and part rattle, which he could not quite make out. There was something in it of trickling water, but there was something else too, a kind of movement. He pushed the candle closer to the stone rim, then picked up the tray and held it out above the pit, but the light was far too feeble to illuminate its depths. It is the sound of rats, said a thin, hoarse voice. All the wastes of the castle are hurled into pits like this one, so that they fall into a common space, where they are flushed all too gradually away by water hurled after them. Where they go after that, who can tell? Orfeo raised the candle higher then, and saw that beyond the mouth of the pit, which was only six or seven feet across, there was another ledge like his own, with another pallet of filthy straw, and another shackled prisoner, sitting on his crude bed. The sight of that prisoner made him draw in his breath very sharply. The man must have been handsome once, and, to judge by his diction, he had been a gentleman but he seemed as thin now as a starveling beggar. His skin was very white, and there were ugly sores on his face and bare arms. His hair was grown very thin too, and that too had turned white, contrasting sharply with the darkness of his shadowed eyes. "'I'm sorry for my appearance, sir,' said the gentleman. I fear that I have not seen the light for some years now, and there is something about this dry northern bread which does not entirely agree with my southern stomach. I hope you will not be offended if I say 
that I am glad to see you, for if my reckoning is correct, it is three months and more since last I had a companion. The boy who brings my meagre rations has no time to talk, nor inclination to listen, and I am not ashamed to say that loneliness has weighed upon me far more heavily than this shackle upon my leg. Though this speech was very carefully made, its tones were undercut by anguish, and Orfeo could tell that it cost the other much to maintain such studied politeness. Who are you? asked Orfeo. He spoke more abruptly than he normally would, for the shock of the place added to the legacy of his nightmares had taken an icy grip on his mind. My name is Yakamo Falquero, said the other, speaking a little less hoarsely now. I am a native of Gualcazar. May I know your name? It is Orfeo, replied the player. I have no family name, and I have no home. I live as a travelling player and teller of tales. At that, the other man burst suddenly into tears, though Orfeo saw that he had all too little to spare in the way of actual tears, and must perforce sob rather dryly. Oh, Orfeo, said the miserable man, you cannot know how I have prayed for a companion though I knew it was an evil thing I did. I cannot help but be glad to see you, though I hate myself for wishing such captivity as mine on another man. Forgive me, my friend, if my prayer has played a part in bringing you here. Forgive me! Orfeo felt a sudden lump in his throat, as if he might himself burst into tears in sympathy with the pangs of Falquero's conscience but he swallowed hard and said, Hush, man, I was brought here by an evil creature who wished me harm, and not by your prayers. And if it is my fate that I must languish here a while, I am glad that I do not find myself alone. He looked around, to judge more precisely, the nature of his confinement. The cell was rectangular, some sixteen or seventeen feet by thirteen, while the pit cut a narrower rectangle from its floor, taking six or seven feet from the longer dimension and eight from the shorter. The floor was laid out in the shape of an angular horseshoe, with a door halfway around. "'How long have you been here?' asked Orfeo gently, when the sobbing stopped, and Falquero began to win the struggle to control himself. Five years.' as near as I can reckon, said the other mournfully. I have had other companions, but they were so broken by torture that they did not live long. None was with me for longer than a month before being tumbled into the pit, though those who keep us do not always wait until a man is dead before they give him to the rats. Orfeo looked down at the pit again and could not repress a shudder. How did you come to this fate? he asked his companion. You ask if I committed some crime? replied Falquero with a hollow laugh. No, I see that you do not, nor do I ask of you how you deserved this confinement. I 
was sent to Zaragoz with a little girl, to be her protector, appointed by her lawful guardian. My small mistress was summoned by her relative, the Duke, in the expectation that when she came of age she might marry his son. But we did not like what we found here, and one night I tried to take her away in secret, to return her to her guardian in Gualcazar. I have been here ever since, and do not know what became of my mistress. Is her name Seraphima? asked Orfeo. It is, said the other, raising his head from his hands as he spoke, in surprise expectation. Then I can tell you that she is alive. She is a prisoner, but in a kinder place than this. I have not seen her, but I was near her only two nights ago. I cannot speak for the Duke, but I think his intention still is that she should marry his son, if the lady's consent can only be won. It seems that he has been patient while they were still so young, but I do not know what will happen now that her coming of age approaches. Giacomo Falquero received this news in silence, and though he was obviously grateful to know that the lady was not dead, still he could take only meagre comfort from a knowledge of her situation. Orfeo looked again down into the pit, which drew his thoughts at every moment's pause. Was this, he asked himself, to be his end? Was he to be cast, dead or alive, into the castle's cloaca, to be devoured by the vile scavengers which wallowed in its filth? He moved the candle closer to his bed, knowing that Scabera had only left it for him, so that he might see his eventual destination. How long, he wondered, would Scabera deign to let him remain in the living hell of confinement and contemplation, before tiring of his continued existence and putting an end to him? Did any other know that he was here, and would any other care, if any knew? How fiercely would Rodrigo Cordova pursue inquiries as to his whereabouts, and what effect could his efforts possibly have, given that he seemed to be surrounded by enemies of his own, and might easily be brought here himself? Did they hurt you much? asked Giacomo Falquero, and Orfeo saw that the other man was staring at the ugly bloodstain on his shirt that marked the wound which Scabera had inflicted. Only in anger, he said. There is nothing I can tell them which they need to know. And though the minister says he doubts it, I think he knows that it is true. If he tortures me again, it will be for pleasure alone. Perhaps he will not, for he seems to have other things to occupy his mind, perhaps to do with your mistress's coming of age. The doom of Zaragoz has been cried by a strange prophet, and there is an unease in the land. If there were but a chance of de Avila's defeat, my friend, said Falquero, I would not deny you hope while it can still nourish your soul. But while I have been here, I have found that hope, in the end, becomes one more kind of torture. In such captivity as this, one can only live from hour to hour, once, 
I prayed every day for my release, but as those prayers have gone unanswered, I have forced myself to make my ambitions more modest than that. Orfeo stretched himself to soothe his aches, then knelt to test the strength of the shackle which bound him to the wall. It was very strong, fixed by two thick rivets. They must have brought a smith here with him to forge the metal while he was still unconscious, and the smith must have been a skilled man too, for his ankle had not been seared by the heat. Cold water must have quenched it in the brief interval before it spread from the rivets to the circlet. The fact that they had sealed him thus, rather than using a lock and key, told him unequivocally that Scabara did not plan to let him go. The minister was a man with all the necessary power and, and cruel inclination to turn his petulance into a sentence of slow and horrible death. Orfeo felt a surge of righteous wrath in his guts, which screamed that this could not be, for he had done nothing at all to deserve it, but it plainly was, and all complaints that he might utter, whether he directed them at the man who had done this or at the gods themselves, would not alter it. He considered what Falquero had said about hope becoming one more thread of torture, but put the thought from him. The time was not yet come to despair. Rodrigo Cordova lived, and was his friend, and absurd as it might seem, the Lady Veronique might still be so determined to have him play and dance at the Night of Masks as to demand that her father's minister allow him to do it. While he knelt there, still listening to the traffic of vermin in the caves far below, the door of the cell opened. Orfeo took up the candle to see better who it was. It was a small boy, bearing a pair of leather buckets. It was the same small boy, in fact, who had brought food to the other prison, where the Lady Seraphima was confined, and Orfeo realised what a sick irony it was that the boy's enforced silence had prevented him from reporting to Falquero how his mistress fared. The boy would not break that silence even now, though he recognised Orfeo instantly. There was someone behind him in the doorway, watching to see that the rule was not broken. Not Fernand Arrigo or any other man-at-arms, but the far more sinister figure of the huge man who had held Orfeo prisoner, Oscar Berra hurt him. Orfeo dared not speak to the boy, lest he should cause him further trouble, but he knew that his eyes were imploring the child to spread the news of his presence here. As he tried to exert the force of his will to send the silent message, he wished fervently that, that he had the art to work one tiny trick of magic, but he was not even sure that the boy knew who it was that had carried him unconscious to the kitchens, or would think it a debt he owed even if he did. The boy took two small loaves from one of his buckets and laid them carefully down, one at the end of each ledge, beside a wooden bowl already waiting there. He added a few leaves of raw cabbage, then he poured a measure of water into each bowl. Thank you, said Orfeo, in a tone as neutral as he could manage. Falquero said nothing. Then the boy left, 
and the giant cell-keeper closed the door behind him. He had a dozen loaves or more, said Orfeo. There must be other dungeons like this one, each with its oubliette, a ready supply of noxious gases and the ever-present music of the rats. Sometimes, said Falquero, there are other sounds. Before I was a prisoner, I was told that the caves are very extensive, and that the rats which feed on the wastes of the castle are eaten in their turn by monsters which never see the light of day. One of my former companions lived, for a brief while, in the terror that something whose foulness was beyond his imagining might come from that pit to devour him alive. There have been times when I could not have cared had something of that kind come for me, but nothing ever did. Whatever makes the sounds can no more fly than the rats can, and the wall of the pit must be very hard to climb. Orfeo could have wished for less macabre conversation as he ate his frugal meal, but he did not complain, and when the meal was over, he listened while Falquero told him more about the agonies of confinement. He felt that it was not for him to question that need which the other man had to speak his mind, and that it was a necessary act of kindness to let the thoughts spill out as they would, without interruption. Eventually, though, Falquero's need to talk gave way to a need to listen, and he begged Orfeo to tell him a story, a story which would make no mention whatsoever of Zaragoz, or prisons, or shackles, or pits. This Orfeo did, as bravely as he could. He wove a complicated plot out of the adventures of a king's three sons, each of whom fell in love with a different magical woman, and was sent on a remarkable quest. Which tests all would have failed, save that their paths crossed and recrossed, so that they might all help one another until, in the end, each one achieved his heart's desire, though only one could inherit the kingdom. It was, by nature, a long story, and Orfeo made no attempt to shorten it, for he wished to be lost in its twists and turns nearly as much as his companion did, and though he knew all along how it would end, he was nevertheless carried away by the suspenseful art of his telling. The story helped him to forget, for a while, the many hurts which were afflicting his body, and when he finally reached the end of it, he found that he had become very drowsy, and was able to escape into a far gentler slumber than the nightmare-infested sleep from which he had earlier roused himself. When he awoke again, he did not know where he was at first, and when he opened his eyes the darkness was impenetrable, for the candle had long since burned out. For a moment or two he had struggled for recall, but then the stench of the pit brought it all back to him, and he felt the coldness of the stone beneath the straw. He could still hear the sound of rats roaming restlessly about the depths of the pit. But there was another sound, too, which must have played a part in waking him. It was the sound of a creaking hinge, and he realised that the door to the cell was being opened very slowly. He sat up then, 
and turned towards the sound, and as the links of his own confining chain rattled quietly, so there was a second rattle, like an echo, which was the sound of Giacomo Falquero sitting up in his turn, having been similarly awakened. Having been pushed carefully open, the door was pulled to again, and still no one spoke, for whoever was coming in was trying to do so as quietly as he could. Then, when all the sounds had died save the distant whisper of the rats, there was a little flicker of bright flame, and there appeared from the darkness a hand, lighted as if by a will-o'-the-wisp dancing upon the palm. By that light, Orfeo could see a face, and no doubt Falquero could see it too. For when they spoke, it was in unison, and the name which they pronounced was exactly the same, in its syllables and in the sheer astonishment with which they spoke. What they said was, Archangelo! Interlude Orfeo paused in his narrative as one of the candles guttered and went out. It was not until he moved, and pain shot along his right arm from shoulder to elbow, that he realised how stiff he had become, entranced by the intensity of his narrative. He was not the only one who seemed entranced. He looked across the table into the face of Alcadi Nazarene, who had been listening so intently that his features seemed carved from wood. Two or three empty seconds passed before the caliph's concentration was broken. Then he scowled. This is a devilishly long story, said Alcadi Nazreen, shifting an empty wine cup and looking around. It has kept us here all night. I'm sorry, said Orfeo. When I saw how interested you were, I became determined that you should not miss the slightest detail of the tale. But it is all mysteries and riddles. Are all your Bretonian tales so convoluted? They tend that way, Orfeo admitted, but in this case the convolutions were not built in by me. I am simply reconstructing the patterns by which events unwound. I can promise you solutions to most of the mysteries and some of the riddles, but true stories are never as neat as ones a player makes up for the telling. When I invent, I am like a god who knows all, and can intervene in the interests of justice to ensure that the guilty are punished and the good rewarded. When I remember, I am only a man who sees but the smallest fraction of what occurs and has no authority to command or understand those higher beings whose work it is to determine who shall live and who shall die. If you know the answers to these mysteries now, said the caliph, speaking as though he had a sour taste in his mouth, then you need not make mysteries of them while you tell your story. A story is still a story, Orfeo replied. 
and must proceed from beginning to end. And besides, there are questions whose answers you have chosen to hide from me, in order to contrive a little drama of your own, for you have not told me precisely where your interest in my story lies, thus insisting that I risk offending you. If you would tell me what name you bore before, you were Al-Qadi Nazarene, Caliph of Ma'aba and Lord of the Twin Seas. Damn your infernal curiosity, retorted the other. I want the truth, not half-truth bent to the purpose of clever flattery in the hope of securing your release. You are a slave here, Master Orfeo, and it is I who have the sole right to make demands and ask questions. How much longer will the telling of this story take? It is difficult to judge, said Orfeo, as I have never told it before. We have storytellers in Araby, too said the caliph coldly. Among the stories which they tell is the tale of a wife sentenced to execution, who obtained stay after stay by telling stories to her royal husband, each one suspended before morning in order to win another day of life by tempting curiosity, until the farce had lasted a thousand and one nights. You would not seek to treat me thus, I trust, I fear that my storytelling skills would not suffice to make it last as long as that, said Orfeo blandly. I have lost track of the hours, but another session as long as this should bring the tale close to its conclusion. I assure your highness that I am no more anxious than you are to spend another thousand nights in this manner. Then you must go to your room now and sleep. Tonight, when I summon you again, you will take the tale to its conclusion. Then we will see what has become of our bargain. So saying, the caliph clapped his hands loudly, and there came into the room the same female servant who had led Orfeo from his prison so many hours before. He could not believe that she had stayed awake so long, waiting outside the door, and concluded that she must have a couch nearby where she had taken her rest. He was very tired himself, and longed to throw himself down on a soft bed. His wounded shoulder pained him, and so too did an older wound upon his breast, which he had thought quite healed. Is this old age which creeps upon me, he thought. Perhaps Estalia took a greater toll than I thought. But he did not really mean Estalia. He meant Zaragoz. The name held no particular terrors for him now, but there was much that he did not care to remember in the record of his adventures there. The memory of Diavilla's dungeons and the things which lurked beneath them was something which came to him now and again in nightmares. But this was the first time that he had ever undertaken to describe what had occurred there in detail. To tell the story, leaving nothing out, would be to relive the darkest and most dangerous hours of his life, and it would tax his strength and spirit. Still, it must be done. When he was put back in the room which served as his prison, the boy Marrow promptly woke up and greeted him. Did the caliph like your tale? asked the boy fearfully. 
Orfeo threw himself down upon a bed of cushions and said, I cannot tell, for it is only half told. I had hoped to see in his eyes whether he was a friend or enemy of the men of Zaragoz who came to hate me, but I cannot. Reason tells me that if he were not their enemy, he would not have quit the town, and yet I cannot be sure. Even if he is Quixana, there may be less in the tale to please him than I could put in, if I dared to invent an ending other than the true one. Well, said the boy bravely, we have one more day to live, and I am not made a eunuch yet. No, said Orfeo, and I have been in too many prisons, harsher by far than this one, not to hope for release. I have been a lucky man where prisons are concerned, and have sometimes thought that the gods must like me very much as a wanderer, to set me free so often, and send me on my way. I must trust Moore and Manon, by whom he made me swear, that they will save me now. So saying, he let his eyes fall shut, and very soon was fast asleep. But Marrow, watching him carefully, saw that he was troubled in his sleep by dreams which made him move, and sometimes make as if to cry out, though very little actual sound spilled from his lips. He's dreaming, thought the boy, or else foul demons are taunting him, telling him that he will soon be theirs. Then he got up and went to the window to watch the birth of the new and hopeful day. I've said in earlier coverage of the Brian Craig books that his understanding of the Warhammer world and particularly of chaos in the Warhammer world is drawn from the core rules of Warhammer fantasy roleplay rather than the Realm of Chaos books. This certainly seems to continue to be the form with Zaragoz where, a slight focus on chaos and pleasure aside, we have little sense of the demon worshippers of the castle being attached to one of the chaos gods. As I've said before, this can lead to a bland take on what demons and chaos are like. But I quite like it here. In the depiction of Semhaza, Craig has picked out an interesting feature of the Warhammer fantasy roleplay demonologist in that he is shown having the penalties or disabilities that are seen to accompany being one of the various evil wizards in that rule set. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay gives us a list of bad things that can happen to your body if you choose the darker paths. This could be a mundane loss of physical statistics, but it could also take the form of animals and children being repulsed by you, shifting to a nocturnal existence, or starting to smell really bad. The strange appearance and strange odour of Semhaza is clearly a manifestation of that rule. 
What I like here is that Craig manages to weave the wizard's physical strangeness into his character. Semhaza is, in some way, moving beyond the human. His perception and raw magical powers mark him out as someone unlike those around him. But the discussion of how he does not desire to dance, his interests being so focused on the magical, coupled with the discussion of how wizards do not desire material power, feed into the idea of the dark wizard as being a species apart. The demonologist's penalties were meant to grow more extensive over time, and the overall effect of cumulative degeneration, even as your knowledge develops beyond human concerns, gives the feeling of the wizard evolving into something else entirely, a little of the fly, a little post-humanism, perhaps a little hellraiser too. Having said that, there is also the possibility that Semhaza is vicariously having sex with Orfeo whilst looking out through the eyes of Morella, so perhaps his areas of interest are not quite as esoteric as they might seem. But then really, everyone wants to have sex with Orfeo, so what do you expect? I started working on a whole bit about how Orfeo is the only character in the Warhammer world that has canonically made a woman come. Nagash can't say that for himself, can he? But then I remembered that Orfeo is the narrative voice in this story, so we are knocked back to Orfeo being the only character in the Warhammer world who reckons he's made a woman come, which doesn't have quite the same impact. Orfeo does have a kind of James Bond quality, inasmuch as women become instantly fascinated by him, including women who are clearly on Team Evil, as well as being an object of fascination for the villain who has held him captive. Orfeo does not present as hyper-masculine like Bond, however, and Skibera's anger with him seems to be in part that he presents in an effete manner, angered but also attracted to it pretty clearly, I would argue like a closeted 1980s Tory looking at Adam Ant. Bond gets his penis threatened with a laser, Orfeo has his nipples, which only have meaning on a woman apparently, worked over. I'm usually a bit cagey about sexually menacing homosexual sadists as a character archetype, but I suppose I find the possibility of reading Skibera's sadism as coming from his repressed nature takes the edge off that a little. Sexuality in general has a hard time finding its place in Warhammer. In the long term, as the game was marketed to a younger audience, the presence of sexual desire in the setting was, was largely expunged. You still got the odd, fairly nude witch-elf, but models like the demonettes were reimagined to make the alien erotic hermaphrodism that they displayed in their third edition Realm of Chaos versions largely expunged. But I do think that this book has something interesting to say about it. Not so much the actual sex scene, but the discussion that happens with Morella, which places sexuality into the metaphysics of this universe. The pleasure of sexuality, but also of making music, of doing and being and living in any way, are, Morella contends, born out of the animating force of chaos. 
I quite like the idea that the things that make people feel alive are actually a product of chaos, and so you might as well lean into them and embrace the chaos because it is inevitable that, because of the inherent entropy of all things, it will all fall apart in the end, so you might as well enjoy it first. All men die by fire. As a rule, I have found the faux Castle of Otranto dialogue in this story a bit turgid at time, the long conversation that Orfeo and Rodrigo have about what to do next in really similar voices is pretty hard work. But this, more poetic stuff, and indeed letting someone caught up in chaos explain the logic of what they think they are doing, works really well for me. Although, the idea of it actually being Sam Hazzo saying all this stuff as his post-coital musings via his sex puppet, rather than it being a take that belongs to Morella alone, might not be as exactly what I wanted. Because if it is Morella speaking, then it allows us to see different perspectives on why someone would come to chaos, from the hedonism of Morella to the monomania of Sam Hazza and that would be more satisfying for me. One more thing on the nipples. Scabera says, How stupid the hand which shaped us was to give men what only women need. And this made me reflect on the fact that the Warhammer world has gods, but no creation myths. So where do people actually think they came from? The slan are not well known about, and I don't think this is a reference to that, but humans don't attribute their origins to Tal or Ulrich or someone similar. This is a throwaway line from Craig, but just like it is interesting to imagine what an early modern European polytheistic society is like and to extrapolate the consequences from that, so similarly, a society that has gods but knows that they do not owe their existence to those gods and then the relationship these people have with their deities as a result would be fun to explore. Does Warhammer have hell? It has loads of things with hell in the name, for sure, but unless you've literally handed your soul over to chaos, people sort of go to a Hades analogy in the land of Moor, right? There's a research here for me to do. The chaos worshipper plot aside, the majority of this section of the story concerns itself with the kidnap and rescue of Rodrigo and trying to work out who would want to kidnap this nice young man and the matter of the Lady Seraphima. I think it's a necessary addition because it adds an air of mystery to the plot which Orfeo can then try and solve. As the first third of this story is essentially just things happening to him with little impetus of his own. The problem is that this plot runs alongside the discovery that the rulers of Zaragoz are bound up with demons, and the two sets of concerns don't quite run at a tempo and intensity that matches. Nevertheless, I feel like this impetus has made this second third of this story less staid than the first third. Let's see where the concluding part takes us. Please feel free to comment on the show in the posts on the Old Hammer, Rogue Trader or Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay First Edition Facebook groups, or to leave a review if you are so inclined. Please tell friends if this is the type of thing that might interest them. You can also follow me on Twitter where I post at 
at Lewis Kernow about, well, history, this podcast, RPGs, miniatures, and Turnip 28. And I'll see you next time with our final instalment of Zaragoza.